Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Boga Pass Horror Podcast. As always, from Boston, this is Scott. And this is Jim from a very smoky LA. We can smell the fires from here, even though they're pretty far away. So, uh, stay safe, Jim. We're doing it. Very special guest joining us today. It was a long time coming, but it's, you know, it's hard when you have three professionals trying to squeeze themselves and, you know, knock off a couple of hours to cover a really cool film. But very, very happy from, I'm going to do my best baritone uh, castle of hard voice from <laughs> from Devon, colorado founder of uh castle of power podcast i'm i'm totally feeling it this jason castle You're doing Har- wonderfully <laughs> <laughs> yes 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 it, it uh from denver colorado this is jason henderson and yes i am the host of the castle of horror podcast and uh you know occasionally other people host it you know usually i i eventually come back and like rec- reclaim the throne it's like it's like being batman john paul valley can only be there for like a couple months and you're gonna come and like throw him off a building so <laughs> sometimes alfred did put on that bad costume just to fill in and adam west to put the costume back on so i totally I get s- it he did there is one where alfred put on oh, yeah the, the, yeah trying to fake out the commissioner or somebody who's convinced they know who batman is I thought. that's right alan napier right yeah. was was uh the, alan wasn't alan napier the guy who played who played mm-hmm. alfred yep and yeah. yeah it's absurd though because he doesn't look <laughs> there's, there's no way in hell that that gentleman in that mask would have been confused <laughs> i think you pointed he's he's the bad gentleman not the bad man <laughs> I'm thinking it was the 60s. There was a lot of, you know, mind altering things going on. Imbibing going on. You know, we're just going to roll with it. But Jason, really such a pleasure to have you. And, you know, I can't say enough, you personally, and just you show what certainly, you know, help blaze a trail for people like, you know, Jim and I to get into not only podcasting, but just having fun doing something that's, you know, meaningful and kind of, you know, Jim and I said before, just something important for us is just keeping this torch lit not only for our generation but the generations that have come after us we've been inspired by you know our parents and our grandparents generation with with horror and just movies in general so i think we both feel kind of a responsibility to keep this thing going and discovering castle of horror you know probably four or five years ago it just you really did lead you know me personally on uh to get me thinking that man you could do something really important but just sit around with buddies and friends and just have a blast thank you so much that that's that's extremely generous and extremely kind we uh started doing castle of horror podcast in i want to say something like june of 2010 or 2011 i I actually can't remember right now but it's it's the summer of 2010 or 2011 and we um 347 movies ago and uh uh we just you know we picked a night right now we've been doing it on sunday nights for the past several years and uh it's been a way for my wife and i to have something that we look forward to doing together every every week and and um you know we've gone from i feel like we've gone from young to old recording this thing because that's 10 that's 10 years you know and uh it's it's really it's really been good for us and in fact it's made me more confident in my own willingness like to to like the things i like and and skip over the things i don't like 
Nice. Like I will never, with rare exceptions, we will never do a show on something that we don't like because there's just so much stuff that we enjoy. Right. That you just don't, you don't have to, you don't, you don't have, you don't have to spend time on stuff that you don't want to spend time on. Yeah. There's not enough time in the day. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I feel that way about the internet too. Like Jim, you and I are on, on Twitter all the time. Right. And why would you take the time out to say, Oh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I saw the shining mini series and it's not any good. Why would you bother sharing that? Just right. Right. <laughs> I, 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 unless you, I guess, I guess you need validation. You're right, right. I guess I didn't like this and I want to make sure other people didn't like it too. So I can justify my opinions and stuff. And I think you get to a point where you're like, you know what? I don't care if anyone else likes things I like. I don't care if I like something nobody else likes. I like plenty of right. things that I'm pretty sure nobody else likes. Timothy yeah. Dalton is my favorite James Bond. So I'm 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 ensconced in this unpopular opinion. I've I've embraced him my whole life. So hey, whatever. Fair. <laughs> it's a fair opinion. And by the way, I have no this is another strange thing is I don't really have strong opinions along the lines of like I mentioned the shining miniseries. I personally, I kind of neither like nor dislike the Shining miniseries. It just is. It just is a work yeah. that you know has a few interesting things about it, and and so and that I try may to avoid also that be, in my own in my own films. I want to make sure everyone, someone either loves my film or hates it. If I hit that middle road, I feel like I don't. Maybe I didn't do enough, or maybe I didn't make it unique enough, or something. So that's my. Goal. Maybe you're right. I mean, maybe I, that maybe that's true. That that, that I, I more achieved the hating thing than I do the liking thing <laughs> until now. But you know, I'm working. I'm working towards the former. We can all we can all hope. But it's a, no, but it's a super point, Chase. I mean, again, like something I've learned from doing this podcast. Not that I don't think I was overly harsh with films and and, and novelettes and everything, but just for an example, we just so Jim and I just covered. Uh, she Wolf of London, which if you've ever seen before, has a, a rancid reputation. I have just, never seen the She Wolf of London. Well, there's no, about so it. it's, a, it's a She Wolf of London. There's no She Wolf. They're not even in London. Um, <laughs> so what? <whatever. laughs> Well, this, I almost there, did a spit take there, but I just there, there, there's actually, an there's an of in there. That's the only accurate right, part there, of the title. There might be an of. <laughs> So I guess my point being is there's, there's a lot of a lot of loud and harsh critics on this. And I found yeah. myself pulling back in being you know humble to the fact that, you know, I'm not a filmmaker. I, I couldn't make a film. I, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a, you know, a, a writer who I, I probably couldn't write She Wolf of London. Actually, maybe I could, but I don't know. But my, my point being is you can't from you know, maybe just being a layman, quote unquote, you know, to shit on someone else's work like that is really yeah. such no so narrow minded and so unfair that. You know, that is something I, I kind of picked up after doing the show. I always say that the people yeah. who, who made the film that you don't like work just as hard as the people who made the film you like. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, there have been a couple of... Ex- so, boy, I think about that all the time. Because I think there was some movie that Roger Ebert had a quotation that came from a film. And it was something like, the guy says, when I start a movie, I want to make a great movie. And by the time I'm finishing it, I just want to be able to finish the movie. You know, <laughs> that's and, so accurate. And, and it was it was that you know you take any given work and i don't care what it is there are so many thousands of little creative decisions and any one of them in theory could push it over the cliff into yes. into a film that ultimately fails at its goals right and and it's so hard for people to understand that that what you may be looking at maybe they ran out of money 6 weeks before they were intending to or you know the the studio shut them down or somebody died and had to be replaced at the last minute or you know uh the the warehouse burned down the night before they you know or whatever yeah. and 
you just don't. It's a miracle that most of the work that we have in front of us uh, exists. Anyway, I I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, these are all great points. I mean, I guess not to go back to our history. So Fu Manchu, Jim, I mean, that how long the the rewrites and rewrites and rewrites and retakes because of censorship. We were saying they shot it for three months off and on. And you're talking about the one with Claudette Colbert or 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 no, the one with uh, uh, Boris Karloff and Myrna Loy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Myrna Loy. Yes. Yes, I saw that at uh, Alamo Draft House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the we, big uh, we, did, we just covered that last week, or actually this week, right? It was two days ago, Scott. Jeez, two days ago, yeah. Yeah. All right, Jason. I mean, as the uh, the guest host, you had the choice of like literally. I mean, the only barriers we put up were really to keep it within you know 1920 to 1950, uh-huh. Universal, RKO, MGM. So you came up with 43's Phantom of the Opera, and just really you know, of all the films you could have picked, <laughs> Jason. Why this one? Well, I, you know, boy, this is a really good example of what we were just talking about, because just like with The Curse of the Cat People, which we just did an op- episode about, this is a film that that defies people's expectations. And I have to say, if this is a horror movie, and I think in the in the broadest sense of the term, we have to assume that it is at the very least a horror movie, right. I think. But if it's if it is a horror movie, it is a horror movie that defies all expectations of it. And I love, 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 love will skip anything else to be able to watch a horror movie that defies people's expectations. I love that. Now, I don't I, I believe that a film has to follow the basic rules of the game. And so so I don't like absurdist film. I don't have any. I, I think it's. It's fine that it exists, but avant-garde, absurdism, and so forth, that's not my thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But a horror movie that you walk in and you're like, huh, this is going nowhere that I expected it to go. I will gladly watch that, even if it's even a little boring compared with something that that meets all of my expectations. And sometimes, by the way, you can meet you, you can you can defy my expectations by doing everything by the numbers and yet doing it extraordinarily well. I just saw mm. the Nighthouse, and that thing is a by the numbers ghost story. But boy, is it scary! And so, yeah. you know, but this one, it is. It's not a mystery like the first uh, Phantom movie. It's not scary, really. Ever, right. I think you. It's you know, is it an adventure? Not particularly. They're kind of like in one place all the time. You know, they're just in one gorgeous. So what it is, is a horror tinged melodrama. I mean, yes. it, 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 and, and the, the thing that, that made me fall in love with it was when I sit down to watch the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, I'm just struck by, man, this is a movie. I mean, it's a movie. The yes. colors just like reach out of the screen and strangle you with Technicolor. It's just so colorful. And, you know, 90 minutes, it just clips along. It's funny. It's got long breaks of opera. And you, and you, so I'm, I'm thinking, like, if I'm this guy who works at the phone company in 1943, and I'm taking my girl to the movies on a Saturday night, this is a movie, man. I mean, it's, it, it just feels bigger than anything that I will ever experience. And so to me, that's why I like it. No, that's yeah. wonderful. Great answer. Yeah, because it is. Thank some you. of these, you know, get very milk toast, and especially some of the B-level horrors. And this one, it's, you know, towards the late 30s, early 40s. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. obviously, we're not going to talk Wolfman, but, you know, the, <laughs> Universal, they, they really did. I mean, they lost a lot of their funding, a lot of interest in horror. So you're right, Chase. I mean, this one, 
between the sets and the music and the Technicolor. Really, I mean, <laughs> I'm picturing this, you know, this blue collar guy sitting there with his his, with his main squeeze. Yeah. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Is this is this culture? Hang on. Right. <laughs> did you trick me into culture when I went to see my monster movie? Well, I think that's you did. the other thing I was curious about. And maybe you guys, because you specialize in Universal, which I do not. So help me with this because I'm real darn curious about this. So I'm a regular middle class guy in Toledo. All right. Uh, in 1943, I'm going to the movies on a Saturday night and it takes place at the Paris Opera. So is it the expectation of Universal that that this is pop culture, that that like this is what a, a regular Joe buying a ticket, buying two tickets is going to feel like he got his money's worth and he got to see some opera? And, and like, is that is that where American culture was? I'm not being I, I rhetorical. Don't. I, I really want to know. I, I would argue not. I would argue that this was, and, and I think some of the fact, you know, the history bases me out on this is that this was this was Universal shot at doing something highbrow for their for their monster, you know, quote Universal monster kind of uh, echelon. Uh, yeah. This was them taking a swing at something, uh, like I said, like more like culture, more mm-hmm. like, um, and I think maybe trying to get back to because at this point, you know, they're doing they're doing the monster mash movies, they're they're doing some of the mummy sequels, and 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 they're yeah. they're kind of down in the in the pit with a lot of this very pulpy type stuff, right? And mm. you know, this is the middle of the war as well, obviously. So I think this is them saying like we're going to do an extravaganza and i believe this was a very uh, scott i don't know the budget it wasn't this is like two or three million dollars or something it's it is and it, this was and it was very successful too i mean right after this came out they yeah. were already, you, they were already you could argue this it. was a, a tentpole uh what mm-hmm. we now call a tentpole film for for universal at the time i think they really were swinging for the fence with this and they got some serious talent like nelson eddy and and yeah and, and reigns of course right off the heels of of casablanca yes yeah uh, so so i i would argue that this was you know, maybe you pay an extra two cents for this one when at the theater. I'm not sure. This is uh, this wasn't this wasn't the thing that was playing at the Kitty Matinees. I don't. I doubt. Yeah, and it was interesting. So doing just research on this too. I mean, so Claude Rains. I mean, he just seems like such a natural choice for this. He just has that British charm and everything that we loved in the early films. But it's not like Karloff was was a front runner for this role for a long time. Is that I so? Heard that. Yeah. That oh wait, right. was like yeah, the fourth choice. Right. Uh, it's Karloff and then Cheney Jr. and Jr. then. Uh, and Charles Lawton, even before him. Yeah, it, it sounded like so. I mean, obviously, Cheney Jr.'s you know father was in the original, so he you know really, really you know hit up the uh, the studio to you know reprise you know dad's role. And I mean, I think from a, a from a, a media standpoint, that would I'm sure that'd be a sexy pick, but. I couldn't imagine, you know, Cheney Jr. and, you know, the role of, of Claude. <laughs> I think wiser minds prevailed. Yeah, I would. It's hard to imagine. I have to go back and watch him as Dracula because I haven't seen that in a while as a Dracula yes. uh, because he's so American. Right. And he's so like he's, he's uh, it'd be like casting John Wayne as, as the Phantom of the Opera. A bit. He's, he's exactly just, right. He's just so you saw it or or you know any other quintessentially american dudes Rentally, yeah yeah you know I, I i i had thought about that the funny thing was while i was watching this my mind momentarily went blank and i forgot about long cheney senior and i was just going who else could you put in this and i thought well you know what about long cheney junior and i momentarily literally forgetting the greatest phantom of the opera of all time and i, I went through that mind exercise and said no that would be that would be terrible. But not exactly like father, like son. No, no, no. I'm just trying to picture like a six foot two Cheney Jr. with those big husking hands sitting in the violin, the music pit, trying to, you know, do, uh, play you modern. Could never, 
could never pull that off. Right. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I think Claude Rains is actually pretty wonderful to watch. I, I, I think he's got great hair or a great hair piece, whatever's going on there. He, yeah. he looks, he looks really neat. You know, he's, you know, he's only about 10 years older than Nelson Eddy, but uh, he's just so completely different. That's, that's he, he, I don't know. He's, he's a great person to carry the show, especially considering that, you know, again, the original, the 25 version, and I haven't seen the Japanese version, by the way, so I'm dying to see that, but it's the original 1925. You don't really know the story of Eric. If I recall, no, I don't, no, it's, yeah. it's much left. Uh, and and in the Gaston Larue in the 1910 book that this these are all to Which I have not read based on yeah. um, his history is hinted at that he was a like a prisoner on Devil's Island and uh, was either contracted a disease or was was tortured or something in that that results in his his deformed physiognomy in that. But uh, huh. but I, that's why one of my favorite parts of this book is that in this film I should say the iteration of 43 is that we we get a we get an origin story yes. for the. For, for for the Phantom, which is one of my favorite things. So so speaking of which, we should we should get going with the uh, the narrative here, Scott. Yeah, take it away. Yeah, yeah. Let's get. Yeah, I mean, typically we just go through you know the, some of the, the leading stars. Of course, as we mentioned, Claude Rains as yeah. our Claude Anne, quote unquote, the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Nelson Eddy as uh, we'll call him Garon the Baritone, of course. Yeah. Susanna Foster as uh, love interest Christine. Edgar Barrier as Colm Raoul, the policeman. That's because that's how all my notes are referring him to. Um, kind of a, a cool little, uh, called a, a love triangle between the baritone, the policeman, yes. and yeah, Christine, which is a lot of fun. So let's get right into it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a story about obsession. So we have um, Eric Claudin opens up with, I guess, the old stage 28 from the original um, Phantom of the Opera, the original uh, Cheney film. Just Okay, so first of all, I'm set. given to understand that this stage has been destroyed. I thought that it still stood. Yeah, it was it torn down in the, I want to say that it, it's been in, it was in the 2000s. It was finally taken taken down. Uh, it existed all that time up on kind of the hill above Universal Studios. And as Universal Studios has, has grown over the years and changed, um, I believe it was also partially damaged in one of the fires they have up there because Universal Studios is kind of up in the hills, basically. I see. Um, with with a bunch of trees and stuff, so I I think it had partly at least been been damaged or fallen into some disrepair at some point, and they finally had to take it down. But from all accounts, it was um, a like for like remake of the actual Paris Opera Company. So a lot spent a lot of money. It was t- mm. uh, tens of thousands of dollars back in 1920. And it sounds like a set they reused quite often in other uh, Universal films. But yeah, the set you see here um, inside the opera is the original from the, the 20 film. So opened Beautiful. up and we get to see uh, Claude Rains playing his his darndest with a piece called Mater in the um, in the music pit. With yeah. the conductor who, um, I don't know, that his fine-tuned ear just senses something a little bit off. And he thinks it's in the violin section and gives uh, our friend Clyde out the evil eye. But kind yeah. of a, a fun piece here. Can I call something out in this scene? Of course. Uh, in, the, in that opening scene, well, well, you've got, this is one of those things that shows you that this is intended to be, you're supposed to sit in the theater and watch the damn movie. Because this is a scene that rewards not like multitasking with your phone while you're watching the movie, because it's yes. all told through characters looking at one another. It's, you know, there's, the, there's so much going on in this opening scene. I know. There's, there's jealousy. Dialogue. There's that None. going on. And and my favorite thing is is this huge sweeping camera move you have right at the beginning that sweeps back and, and focuses on the chandelier. I mean, the chandelier is the center of the shot. It, it occupies the whole shot. And it's yeah. this little bit of, of their, their, their 
hinting at because because yeah, this is a remake we know yeah. about the chandelier i mean it's almost pop culture knowledge you know what happens with the chandelier and they show it right off the bat and you're like just hang in there you're gonna see it yeah like boy that. that makes me wonder about a lot of these creative choices because if that's the case you're showing the chandelier going hey fellas we know that you expect the chandelier so here it is why give the why why do a that, that explains that you would maybe do an origin story for the Phantom because that's the part that's going to be surprising. Because otherwise, if it's just a straight remake, like you're shooting Hamlet again, yes. then it would have been literally somebody would be watching the same movie they already saw. Yes, yes. I I, I just think there's there's a few things in, in a in a in any kind of well-told tale there's some points you have to hit like in dracula you have to have him bite somebody and in phantom of the opera you got to drop a chandelier on every on somebody yeah yeah (laughs) she-wolf of london you have to have a she-wolf i'm sorry nope maybe not (laughs) apparently apparently you don't well remember i said this film defies expectations but it doesn't defy that one you know like that's (laughs) there there actually is a phantom right there's some it's, there's some rules okay. yeah but yeah wow. it's, it's a, it is interesting Jay. it's a great point i mean you, you know we're in a, you're probably a couple of minutes of the film and i'll say much like the 1920 version no speaking at all a lot of pantomiming a lot of you know the locking of the eyes and you know the yeah. facial expressions and we just we get to a really fun scene of um kind of the the three others who are called, you know garan raul the policeman and, and christine you know have some you know kind of a, a funny funny bit here so yeah basically christine is the understudy of another character called uh, Biancaroli, who is the lead female singer guy kind of plays out they have a little bit of drama later on in the film that we'll, we'll end up getting and, to and but. She, she's into the baritone but the baritone's just into christine and and can i say chris i mean having done some stage work christine is immensely unprofessional Christine is making moony eyes at the lead actor of the of the musical or of the opera while he's singing while he's on yeah. stage. Come on! And then she goes and, and then, meets her boyfriend and then misses the, the curtain officer. call. And misses <laughs> the curtain call. Yeah, I I don't. I, if she was a member of my cast, I think she and I have a have a serious conversation. I'm I would forgive know. the moony eyes. Yeah, but right. uh, but but missing the curtain call is yeah. something that yeah, that's a big deal. You, you shouldn't so, do. But so. you know, hey. Look, what happens is supposed is what's supposed to happen. She gets but she, she's darling back. looking, so she gets away with it. Um, yeah, I just I, do I, love. There's so much going on in this thing, and just a, a funny little note. I, I I think they mentioned this in the making of uh, featurette on the the Blu-ray DVD of, of of the Phantom here. You know, this is and and I will. I'm going to say I'm going to say an adult word here for a second, but we have to keep in mind this movie is made while a goddamn world war is happening. Yes, like like a global conflict is happening and. They're making this movie, which is just astonishing that they were capable of accomplishing anything during during that. Um, Super good point. Yeah. We're we're a year away from D Day. We're two years after after uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. Because of that, they, they the Universal could had great trouble getting the rights to a lot of the famous operas hmm. to to use in this because those operas were done by Europeans, and obviously Europe Europe is on fire at this point. Right, so they're uh, busy. So most yeah. of these are are famous pieces of, or maybe not so famous pieces of orchestral music. That they then blocked out, kind of a you know they the, the composer added uh, chorale voices to, and they turned them into operas. They turned musicals into operas for the sake of this because that's what they could get the rights to. Which is just it's one more hurdle they had to overcome. Which is you don't even notice it, and then you're when you realize the you know the fact of it, you're like, wow, that's that was a whole extra side thing they had to do for this. They couldn't have absolutely just get, you know uh, Wagner or something you know because they couldn't get the rights to it. Well, it, it also strikes me that 
that might though have created music that was more uh, palatable to the ear of the audience mm -hmm. because you know if it's orchestral it's going to be a little poppier you know and that's and so it, good well i mean it reminds me of that comment people say where they go people who don't like opera love the three tenors right where yeah. you know this is music that is has been carefully chosen to be enjoyable to people who don't palatable really yeah opera. yeah because some yeah. opera obviously can be yeah well, I mean, I don't, I don't know from opera, right? But, but yeah. this, this is good. This is enjoyable, you know. So, so I, and that, that actually, it's, it's funny that that begins to give you an idea of what sort of product this is. Like, it's supposed to give you like a hint of class, um, yeah, without yes. necessarily recreating, uh, yeah, whatever and, opera. and just the, yeah. the pageantry and the costumes and stuff. I mean, if, if I have, if I have a, if I have a serious complaint about this movie, is there's a little too little Phantom and a little too much opera in my Phantom yeah. of the Opera in this. <laughs> <laughs> but but for what yeah. it is, it, it's it's quite spectacular. It's 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 really it is fun and uh, to watch. So yeah. so yeah, I mean, poor Christine. She does get called to the carpet quite a bit because of her uh, Miss Curtain call. So was summoned to the office of uh, conductor Villeneuve, and you know basically, so he's very very nice to her, very understanding. You know, you're, you're a young 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 beautiful girl. I get it. You know, you have a love interest, but basically, kind of gives her an ultimatum or almost a life lesson, like a you know a father might give his daughter or you know son. Yeah, is that you need to choose. You you've hit a crossroads here that you can either choose you know love and romance, or you can continue your life in the opera. You really can't have both at this point in your life. Yes. And she understands and she doesn't very dutiful and, you know, thanks him for the time. And meanwhile, in the hallway, we see oh, Eric Claudin, yeah. who's also yeah. been summoned to uh, the conductor's <laughs> office. Isn't this so, wonderful? Parallel stories here. Right. Yeah, like this parallel scene. Yeah. Both in so, trouble. That's good. So we kind of have our first, you know, first scene between Claudette and um, Christine, which is kind of interesting. Because one of you guys want to take us through this little, little, it's a little uncomfortable blur between the two of them. Well, yeah. So, so I think that the thing we should address on the top of this is that there, a lot of there, there's a strong belief, or, or at least some evidence, that originally the ongoing subplot or the B story, I guess, of the of the of the entire film, is that Christine is actually Claudine's daughter, mm. and she does not know that. But, but he does. And the reason that he has um, and, and we'll see in, in upcoming you know scenes and stuff, he's paying for her to have voice lessons. He has kind of been her sponsor. He's what in the or frankly, right. I'm sorry. The Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, version is, is the angel of music. She believes him to be. Um, yes. The reason he's been doing that is because he's he's her father and, and she, he wasn't able to take care of her, I guess, when she was little and, and lost her. But now he's been her guardian angel this whole time. That subplot was, I guess, excised or deleted. It, there was some feeling that there was a little bit of uncomfortable closeness and her obsessiveness between Claudine and, and Christine, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, my understanding is that, that 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 plot lasted through the end of the filming. I mean, I think they, they, yes. they wrapped this film with the idea that, yeah, Claudette was going to be you know, come out as her dad, as her father. And mm. there's even later on the film, I have it later on my notes, he calls her my child. I think she's 17 in this role and reigns, you know, probably near 50. So, yes. I mean, I think he's trying, there's a, a hint of maybe some romance, but would he say to somebody, you know, my child? It, just, it was an he's odd- He's 54, by the way. 54, just, okay. uh, 54. I, I was checking on this beforehand. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah, they so, mentioned so, the movie. So I think it just got 48. a little too- his love for her got a little too intense or came off mm -hmm. a little too intense, uh, I think. And, and Universal decided to, to pull that, that subplot out. And now for some unexplained reason, he, he has just decided to be her sponsor 
or, or, or whatever. So that does, I mean, that does change a lot of the, I think what Reigns is doing, because Reigns is definitely playing that he's her dad. You can see that he's, when you know that, you can see he's, you know, he's playing that he's her father. But it doesn't change the fact that, that look, he, he is, he is, for one reason or another, pointed himself her guardian angel. And he knows so much about her than she knows about him. And that's why this first scene where they meet is very awkward. And then he turns and he accidentally calls her Christine. He calls her by her, her Christian name mm. and it takes her back because it's not what you would have done in the. Yes. Yes. Of- That's a good moment in the script. Yeah. That's really neat where he she's like, up. you forget yourself. I actually can't remember the dialogue, but, but it's rude but or it's, impertinent. It's over familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah. There's no, there's no word spoken again. It's all facial face acting, right? I don't think yeah, he yeah, says, says, says a word and he knows he's crossed a line. Yeah. Yeah, he apologizes and 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 lets her go, and she she rolls out, and she's just very sweet to him. But to her, he's nothing more than a nice older man who happens to That's play exactly in the orchestra. Right. I mean, I I just a brief moment to to go through this a little bit. Like the the great thing about the Weber concept is it rolls a lot of this stuff together. You know, they have the the Death's Head costume that walks down the stairs from, right from the twenty five, but they have a lot of the. <laughs> the weird obsessions from this movie and um, Weber is able to play with just the absolutely bonkers, contradictory obsessions in there and just go for bombast. And, and, you know, that's right. Is he a daughter? Is, uh, is he, is he protecting a daughter? Is he obsessed with a lover? Is he, is he a a God, you know, and he's all those things. This movie uh, hints at some of that, but I think, I I think you spelled it out right. I think they've, they pull back and they take a lot of it out. And so also what you have is a character who is basically pretty nice. uh, And then he becomes, you know, Dr. Evil. He literally goes from, he, it's a complete 180. Uh, and that's it, later. It, in it the is story. a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about that when we get to that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing, but it's that thing where it's almost like it's in the original, the thirty-one Frankenstein, where they they cut out him throwing the girl into the the lake because yes. they found that too shocking. And what they were left with was the scene where Frankenstein smiles, or the monster smiles, and he reaches out towards the girl, and we cut away. So, being yeah. left not knowing what happens ends up being more disturbing. That's than, true than what they cut out uh, and I, because, and because I, of not knowing. And that, I think we fall into that a little bit here. I like that they left it a little bit open ended. Yeah, I really do. Sure. I think bring your own interpretation. Bring your own interpretation, right? Yeah, right? yeah I mean, I'm I all for like that. that. Like yeah. I, I, I actually, you know, it. I kind of, you know, I enjoy it because it gives you more to talk about. I know that that's a silly thing to say, but you know, why not leave things like a little unclear, a little ambiguous? So that, yeah. So that yeah. afterwards, you know, it's 1943, and you go out for whatever the 1943 equivalent of Cinnabon is, and and you go. <laughs> so what was the deal? with with the phantom and christine like like you know yeah you, you, you go and, you go and talk over some some rusty nails and some pink squirrels right yes <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever one does in the in boiler the makers what's sarsaparilla the the point the sarsaparilla <laughs> yes. well the, i mean the fact that they both sing or play at least the same lullaby, you know, from their home, their, their, their childhood yes. home. So uh, to me, like the, the, all arrows in this film are pointing towards a father-daughter relationship, yes. but yes. they um, leave it open-ended, but I digress. I'm glad you mentioned it because I completely forgot about that. And it's, I did not pick up nearly as much on that. To me, he just seemed very familiar. I, I just didn't even think about it. I, I, I truly, I thought that he was super familiar. And so the way I read it was when he is finally freed by his new identity, he's also free to be brazen and perverse in pursuing this young woman. 
So my my reading on it was a completely different read than. No, I think that that's neat. Let's let's get to that part. So uh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So Christine has now left the conductor's office, and Clyden is called in. Basically, you know, called the task. So the conductor is, you know, I think trying to be as respectful as can. Basically, long story short knows Clyden is the weak link in the violin section and, you know, kind of goes through, um, you know, a little bit of a, a test with his violin. So the first thing Clyden plays is the lullaby of the bells, this thing that we, you know, this reoccurring theme throughout the movie of mm-hmm. something he says that he wrote, which he didn't, but it was basically a lullaby from his past. It's a very simple, melodic kind of a piece that he's able to play. And the conductor kind of takes a second guess at, at himself saying, well, maybe I was wrong about this. And then asks him to play a movement from Marta, one of the the pieces from the show. Yeah. And that's when Clyden, you know, basically readily admits he's having, you know, either nerve damage or something's wrong with his left mm-hmm. playing yeah. hand and he can't. So he's, yeah, you guys take it from here. So basically, he, he's kind of yeah, unceremoniously. He can play the simple melody, from, but but that more complicated part. He's he's busted, right? He's busted. Yeah. And he's in this really no because they the Paris Opera Company strives for perfection, and he's basically um, jettisoned. You know, within a matter of seconds. Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, uh, that he he goes back. Um, there's nothing in the way of a retirement for this guy who's played for the the opera for whatever it is. Right, for right, right, right. 20 years. So and, and we, we, we've just gone past Labor Day, which, you know, <laughs> the, so so the idea that, that this guy would have a pension of some kind or something like that is something that doesn't exist in this era, right? That he's no, given his it, life and to this company fact, and now he's done. Yeah, and, and the, the guy's like, well, I presume that you've saved some money because you live in a world where you'd better be saving some money. Right. And... He would be, but then they enter that next plot point, which I'm sure you're going to get to. Yeah. But but I love, I remember seeing as a child, this scene where he goes back to the garret that he lives in and his landlord brings him some bread and says some some plot exposition at him about, about the, the way he lives. And I'm just in love with the Hollywoodishness of all of this. I love all of it. I love the beauty, beautiful view of Paris outside these oh, yeah. windows. There's a there's a cat. They put a cat on the stage that wanders by <laughs> yeah. the window. Yeah, of you course. Know? He's got a cat. He's got. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's almost a set from American in Paris. Everyone lives in in yes. the movies. Everyone who lives in Paris lives in, on top of like the the Second Empire uh, houses yes. that are just all windows <laughs> on the the mansard walls and stuff. Right. I'm <sighs> not sure everybody in Paris lives like that, but that's the. You know uh, it reminded the me a little bit of, of watching uh, Clint in his apartment. I'm like Ebene- Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, somebody yeah. living so frugally, and you know, even his housemaid comes out and you know says she hasn't been paid in you know X amount of time, and all you're doing is eating you know, basically bread and water, you know, I'm not sure what you're doing with your money, if you want to be buried with it. So that the thought is of the conductor, that he's a housemate, and, right, right, is that right. he's just sitting on all of this dough, which, of course, we know he's not because he's been funding, we'll get there funding Christine's vocal lessons. Yeah, yeah. Christine's very expensive vocal lessons with, uh, with, with, the, with somebody we were familiar with, Scott. So we'll get to that pretty we'll soon. Get there. Um, Wasn't well, that yeah. next? In fact, I think that's your next your next scene because he has to go there, and this is what sets up that he needs some cash. But wh- why are you familiar with him? Tell me, uh, tell me about that. Because well, the so the the Christine's vocal coach is uh, Leo Carrillo, who uh, uh, Scott and I just did an episode of 
on uh, Horror Island, and Leo Carrillo's in that. Uh, what is that? Is that 46, Scott? So it's a few years after this. Yeah, 45, 46, yeah. kind of the swash, yeah. swashbuckling. Just a total character. He's great. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was um, not El Cid. I can't remember who he, <coughs> he, he, you know, he played, he, played, he did play a couple of swashbuckling things. Pirate type. He, sort of, yeah. he was sort of a latter day Douglas Fairbanks to me. Like he just had, to, he has this crazy, awesome accent and he rolls his R's and everything. So. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. I, that, that sounds, I really admire that since you guys have chosen kind of a particular sort of portfolio, then it leads you into the crevices of this universe right. of the forties and so forth and yeah. finding, you know, your deeper cuts. And, and that's and, really, and, and it's funny that, you know, universal, they're all, most of them were, were stock players at universal. So they were contracted to the studio and they would just, you know, Scott and I always talk to Jason about how they just send them the next thing. And one week you're, you're in one of their big pageant productions. And the next week you're playing like a reporter in a thing right. that, you know, that the star power thing didn't quite come into play. Like it does now in 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 hollywood um that's right yeah i always yeah. i always seem to fall back on you know and we always use this example jim in previous episodes but dwight fry. About dwight fry right I'm yeah, a, yeah. A, just a huge fan of and you know renfield and dracula 31 to me is yeah. like a, a mount rushmore type performance and then you see him a couple of years later as like mr reporter number four you know yes. taking notes in the corner it's just it's amazing like yeah, the world is a high school, to get their money you're just it, getting yeah. cast and like whatever the next show right, is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and and to some degree, I want I'll get into this in a little bit, but like well, maybe we're talking to him now. Like Rain, Reigns is like that too. You know, you know, Claude Rains ends up in three of Universal's most iconic films. He he's he's in nineteen thirty is it two or three? Uh, Invisible Man, Scott. Three, right? Uh, three. Yeah, he's he's an invisible man. He's the title character in Invisible Man. Then yeah. he's Sir John Talbot. Thirty three, it is. I just, yeah. I just looked it up. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And then he's Sir John Talbot, Larry Talbot's father in Wolfman in forty one. And then now he's Family Opera. He he plays, and and both of these things, he he's a villain. Like the main character of, while they're sympathetic, the main character, the title character of Invisible Man, title character of Phantom of the Opera, are are basically villains. They do bad mm-hmm. things, right? They're not good folks. But in the middle of that, he plays the possibly the second most important character in the Wolfman. He plays uh, uh, Launching Junior's dad with this incredible dignity and 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 you know poise for for a, a man of a much smaller stature than Lon Chaney Jr. Obviously, um, yeah. And in the middle of all those movies, Claude Rains does he's the he's Prince John in in Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. He's obviously um, you know the the French lieutenant or captain or whatever in in Casablanca. Yeah. He, he never quite seemed to have gone to leading man status and maybe he peaked too late or maybe he just wasn't quite tall enough for vert. I, I'm, I'm not sure what that happened, you know, where that mm-hmm. went, but when he did do leading man things, it was always a villain. It's interesting. But, and I don't know if he seemed, if he was happy with that or if he was happy to be at the party or be part of an ensemble or if he strived towards What's more, it, more like a leading man, so more like a Bogart type status or something. But it's but, funny. You meant it's funny. You mentioned that Jim said right before this, I was just, again, doing a little bit of research on the film. So he actually meaning Claude Rains turned down the lead role. So basically Basil Rathbone's role in son of Frankenstein. So that really? could have been Claude oh, Rains really? was offered that role. Yeah. How strange. So, so it's, wow. it, it's, it seems Wolf, almost more He came to this no, film no. with reservations too. He's like, I'll play the Phantom, but I'm not going to play him with a whole bunch of makeup. Okay. Um, oh, he's so fearful uh, of time. Yeah. And that's why the yeah. Phantom's makeup is, is slightly more limited than, than obviously launching junior or launching seniors, very elaborate, very intense, and by all means, uh, or by all accounts, painful uh, makeup. Just a moment about that makeup. I just wanted to let's, let's talk about the 25, if you don't mind, yeah. versus the 43. But the 25 strikes me as so uh, odd and strange and like like seared into everybody's consciousness. 
that in 19, what, 53 or so, when, when um, they do the movie about uh, Man of a Thousand Faces. Oh, Man of a Thousand Faces with Jimmy Cagney, yeah. Yeah, so Cagney appears in Phantom Makeup, and they can't do it. That's what's wild, is they yeah. cannot... They can't replicate it. Lon Chaney's makeup, you know, they they can't. It doesn't even look close. Well, well I, I I'm not sure Cagney had the facial bone structure. Well, that's true for yeah. it. That's that's for sure. But that's so that would have been Bud Westmore's team, I believe, at that point when when um, when uh, Cagney's playing Cagney's playing Chaney playing the Phantom. Yeah. And and you're right. And I noticed that too. That was the main thing I walked away from from Man of a Thousand Faces with is like, man, they couldn't quite, they almost got Quasimodo, but they definitely couldn't get. I don't think Cagney would have allowed them to do the things Cheney did to himself, where he he had wires inside his nostrils pulling him back behind his hairline. Mm-hmm. He had animal teeth that they were incredibly painful. I mean, Cheney tortured himself. Cheney was kind of a sadomasochist, I think. I Cheney mm-hmm. tortured himself for those roles. And I, I just, the, after after a point in Hollywood, and maybe it's good, you weren't allowed to do that to actors anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think you know that, Jim. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. And there's a difference between what an artist will do to create his own art versus like yes. what, you know, exactly. what you can impose on him. I, I, or, or, yeah. or, I agree. Yeah. I I. I haven't seen that movie since uh, I was a kid, but I remember enjoying what a bunch of nonsense it was. Like I, I have a very, I, I mean, this speaking of perverse, I have a very perverse enjoyment of just complete crackpot BS biopics from oh, oh, classic Hollywood fabricated everything. Right. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Like the one, the one where Spencer Tracy plays Thomas Edison. And it's like, not a damn thing in that movie had anything to do with reality. It was, and that, to me that, you know, as long as, as long as you're not destroying all the encyclopedias, they, really they never, no they never show him ruining Tesla's life. Right. Right. Um, exactly. It's all, it's all nonsense. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, I mean, Jason, I I love that stuff. I say, Jason, I'm totally going to edit that line. So rather than when you say, I really enjoyed his total BS, I'm going to cut yeah. in the line right after that saying, and that's why I'm on the Bogo Pass Hour podcast. Because, <laughs> <laughs> man, we do bring a lot of BS. Yes. No, oh, yeah. it's true. So Christine is you know, basically getting the vocal lessons from uh, Senior Ferretti. So, I mean, Jason, you want to walk us through here? You kind of did a great job kind of rolling us in this point here so it's basically you know christine getting these these lessons right uh, so claude rains has been paying a very expensive tutor to give christine her lessons and presumably they're paying off because she does appear to be you know she's earned the right to be the understudy she's good enough that they would put her in the lead if the understudy were suddenly struck ill so so these lessons are paying off so apparently she is talented and the lessons benefit her having said that uh, the lessons are expensive, and that's what Claude Rains has spent every last dime about. And uh, now they have been, um, this is the plot moving, right? Is now because he's been fired, he's not going to have any cash coming in. So he goes to the teacher and he says, I can't pay you for a little bit. Can you float Christine? The teacher is like, look, if you're trying to seduce this young singer, it's really probably not going to work. And he goes, you know, he doesn't even respond to such an absurd thing because it's it's understood to be absurd because Claude Rains is a much older man and just he's not he's not the the strapping you know sexual dynamo that Nelson Eddy he's is. he's offended at the idea mm-hmm. actually right I mean it, it's it's a preposterous notion at least at this moment it is so far from his consciousness yes. if we're to take this work as complete because that's and his, that's his daughter for God's sakes again. Not, <laughs> not, not in this work. Uh, like it's it's uh, possible. Yeah, you can continue going back to that. 
But if we're to assume that it's the way it seems to play out, no, he's he's supporting her because it's the only way that he can show love to this girl that he's obsessed with. That's my read on it. I don't know. I really don't know. It's it's really troublesome. I think and it works both ways. So great. Yeah, it it absolutely works both ways. Um, because I, if the phantom, if the story of the phantom is the story of anything, it's a story about obsession. Yes. and and that obsession doesn't need a blood relation or or not to to exist. It it, it is just to and to eventually run amok, right? Well, and um, we have to assume there's something wrong with this guy. We have to assume that because otherwise it makes no sense that when bad things happen to him, he becomes a supervillain. Yeah. Yes, there has to be something wrong with him early on. Yes, um, there's definitely something sure. off about Claudan, and 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 uh, uh, Reigns is playing that very carefully throughout this whole mm-hmm. first act of the film or act and a half or whatever it is before he get before he, the, the accident happens. He's a very innocent soul. I mean, you can tell yeah. just, just the fact that he's, he's written a concerto and he's absolutely convinced it's his first concerto. He's been working on for, for years and years and years. He has made spoilers. He's made no copies of it. It's the only copy he has. Golly. He's got to take it to a pub, music publisher and drop it off and leave it. And he's convinced that that's going to sell and make him a fortune and, and pay for Christine's lessons and pay for him to live and everything. He's that got a hurts very my naive... heart to think about. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. It's very naive. I mean, have, working in show business, like, you know, <laughs> that's, it just never happens. You never sold your first thing. And then now you're, now you're set for, for life and stuff. So he's, yeah. you get the feeling like he's from Provence. He's, he's from a, a more rural, innocent area of, of, of France. And even though he's lived in Paris for a while, he just hasn't gotten savvy. So, yeah. so, um, and that leads us into this next thing where he, he goes, he tells the, 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 uh, the tutor, I'm going to sell this concerto. It's going to make me plenty of money. You'll see everything will be fine. <laughs> and he goes, this is, how much is this like, like the Phantom of the Paradise, by the way? I mean, this is so, so close to Phantom of the Paradise that it strikes me that that movie also borrowed lots of its plot points from this 1943. I think, yeah. Well, that we, Scott and I always see this about the you know the long shadow of a lot of these films, and it comes up in ways you don't like. Like until we did uh, Fu Manchu the other day, yeah. and, and I've been watching the thing. I never realized like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is there's a lot of Mask of Fu Manchu 19, right. 1932 in that movie. There is a lot of it in there, yeah. and and you just and and, and I never accuse anyone of plagiarism or copying. I just think these the ideas of these films have persisted so long. These films have been famous for so long. Their their ideas of melted into the zeitgeist and they just they get regurgitated that's the way our culture absolutely works. well and it's i find it's often the it, in the same sense that glenn strange became the face of frankenstein for mm. those of us who bought halloween masks oftentimes it's a second or third iteration that becomes yes. the one that everybody kind of remembers for, for some reason i can't i can't quite articulate why that is but usually it's the second movie or the second iteration that that will like seal things where they go, oh, yeah. And and there's acid or there's the guy who steals his music. I mean, really, in Phantom of the Paradise, uh, Paul Williams steals the guy's music and he hears it playing. Mm-hmm. It literally happens. You know, yeah. and I also thought it was really funny in this in that scene where he goes to the publisher and says, hey, I'm, I'm checking in because I submitted some music to you. I wanted to see if it came okay, which, by the way, <laughs> which as a writer is is so funny because it's like bugging a, a publisher and going, hey, I sent you my novel. How's that going? Like, and, but, but, but it's like, I sent you my novel yesterday. How's it going? <laughs> like, like, and, and yeah, because Jason and I both obviously also work in the in the publishing in, uh, business as well. Yeah. And yeah. The, the notorious like check-in, right? Where you're like, hey, how's it? going with that thing I submitted to you six months Last ago week. or 18 years ago or whatever. Oh, it's so, cause I'm both the publisher and a writer 
And it is the most maddening thing yep. on the planet to me because game. I have to check in, you know, with publishers and go, Hey, I sent this to you a couple of months ago, you know, and oh, it's maddening. And, and right. so the editors take to Twitter and they're like, stop checking in with me. And, and yeah, uh, not to this, me personally. This, they don't. So, so Scott, <laughs> this, this whole scene, I mean, maybe it is like an occupational thing for me. This whole scene of him with the, mis- the, the big mistake, right. Where he thinks they're stealing his music, uh, it, it's hard to watch for me. It it, it hurts my heart. Isn't yeah, it is strange. So, so there's a couple of interesting things going on here. So, and <clears throat> again, I my my take on this is that this is not Claudine's first time going to this publishing house. And I think the I guess the chief publication officer is Maurice Playel basically says to him, you know, we should have just done. Oh, hopefully, whoever's looking at your manuscript did what they did with your other manuscripts and just throws it in the trash. So mm-hmm. to me, this feels like this is like his fourth or fifth or sixth attempt. So the, to me, he, Claude N is somebody who is like literally on his last. That's interesting. I have no memory of that, last. but I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. There's, the, there's the, the, the publisher himself or whatever like that is a really awful person. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he tells he just instantly dismissive. Uh, he's only interested. He's like kind of making making time with like his assistant lady or whatever. Oh, and he's got Georgette, the yeah. assistant helping him yes. with the wax um, and. So yeah. any just really quick. So before we move on, so that yeah, the publisher's name is uh, Maurice Playel, and for any you know horror fans or Burgle listeners, he, you'll know him as Sir Frederick Fleet from Return of the Vampire. So he was the oh. um, kind of the chief investigator, if you remember uh, <coughs> Return of the Vampire. He plays the role there. So kind of interesting. Wow, that's great. That. That's really cool. That's good. I love that movie, by the way. Um, um, and and yeah, then out it, of nowhere you know front front it's friends list right is the yes it's, it's yeah it's, it's playing it's list. yeah so, so it's so, like so, it's like you go to the music place and john lennon is playing your your song exactly exactly, exactly. like john in lennon the other just, room it's like john lennon just picked your your piece off the pile and is like oh i'll play this he's and friends list is saying this is incredible i love this like we got to sign this guy this guy's great claudan <laughs> hears them in the next room doing that he hears his music and he's yeah. like you're stealing my music. And and there's a moment, I've got it up on my screen right now, I'm watching the movie, and Claudin snaps, man. Claudin yeah. goes like, and in the hands of a lesser actor, this could have seemed abrupt and maybe not believable or something like that. Somehow, Reigns takes this character from this innocent, naive, gentle soul to to murderous hatred yeah, in, 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 in 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 seventeen frames, and right. he sells it amazingly. Well, the, the sad thing yeah. is, the sad thing is, if Clinton had just waited maybe thirty seconds, That's, yeah, he, he, he would have come crazy out. Crazy about the scene, it hurts my heart. Right, yeah. he would have come out and said, "I, you know, I I love this piece of work. Who is you know who, who's the composer and." You know that that would have been his you know answer to all his problems. But you're right, Jim. The, the minute he hears his music, doesn't hear any kind of response from the other room, and just turns on Playel immediately and kills him. And and, yeah. and and strangle tries to strangle him. Yeah, yeah. Does he strangle him? Or he tries to strangle. I can't him? remember. He killed, he the acid. Him. I don't know. He kills him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, of course, of course, then if, if he had, you know, had taken a minute and, and we'd figured out that List loves his music, the movie would have been 35 minutes long. So let's <laughs> let's be grateful that roll credit. Yeah, I guess we have to be grateful for the misunderstanding. Right. <laughs> that would have been a real defi- defiance of expectation mm-hmm. if Franz List had said, come here, my boy. Let everything worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we have no She-Wolf of London. Um, right. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know in 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 England and I assume in in um in in parts of Europe as well around like let's say eighteen eighty to nineteen whatever handguns were very sparse and expensive and hard to get hold of. Okay, acid throwing was actually quite common 
as a way to get back at cheating lovers, uh, get revenge on people that screwed you over. Because because you could go to a pharmacist or an apothecary or whatever and buy yeah. acids. So so acid throwing wasn't that uncommon. It happened quite a bit. Not not like it wasn't like a daily thing, but it happened a lot. And it was a thing I women be, could I believe do too, you. right? Yeah. It's an acid. So yeah, acid attack. That's interesting yeah. because you do there's, a, there's a Sherlock Holmes story that that is based around someone throwing acid at, at someone's um, really and, and and it was you could do both right. You could do acid and you could do lye, which is like uh, an al- alkaloid or whatever whatever the opposite of acid is, right? On the pH scale, anyway, it's just as bad. I I, I was just remembering that there's um there was a case in San Francisco where this this uh, woman was accused of putting out the eyes of two boys who were harassing her at a laundromat, a uh, Chinese woman, oh. and, you know, and, and, and she like threw lie in their faces mm-hmm. and, and yeah, which is probably a fairly common crime. Um, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. But Golly. I love it. It's a really clever plot thing where, you know, they're making etchings and, and, in, and in etching you uh, just really quick. Here's, you know, here's my $50,000 art education. Please. Off I, I can't wait. This is not <laughs> this is not, I don't know how much good it's done me <laughs> elsewhere in, in, in etching. Uh, you have a copper plate that's that's covered in in some kind of material, and you scratch away the material. You put the copper plate in in an acid bath, and the acid eats away the stuff you've exposed, but not the stuff you haven't. And you're left with those raised markings, and then you do a print, and that's how you make an etching, right? Rembrandt and everyone else, how how they did it. Uh, so when he starts strangling the printer guy, uh, the assistant lady Scott, what her name, the Georgette. Georgette takes that that little tub of acid bath, and that's what she uses to. And she knows it's acid. She's not just trying to stop him. She's like, "I'm gonna f you up, dude, for what yes, you did." Yeah, and she's she's, yes, she's fully and... knowledgeable about what she's doing to him, and she does it. Yeah, wow, that's really that's really interesting, and that that makes me more impressed with this choice. You know, right. that, that knowing that that a person of that time would be like. Well, here is a commonly used weapon in crimes of my day, and I'm going yeah. to use it in that manner. Clever, right? Um, yeah, but it also strikes me as something funny because uh, when I was growing up, a lot of a lot of stuff from you know the forty, a lot of forty year old junk was was on TV. And come and look at etchings. Come and look at my etchings was a common joke. That was of like course. a common euphemism for come on up to my apartment. I'm going to try to attack you. And, exactly. and, yeah, yeah, we're going to. You know, yeah, Scott, we talked about that on Horror Island. Where uh, really? they, they make a joke about about this guy's more into etchings. That's right. Right. So it's so funny that that that's, that these guys are actually doing etching. I mean, Dracula's daughter was such a. I mean, it was such a you know warm place in my heart. You know how does she's attracting you know that beautiful little Lily? With, it's not quite the etchings, but like the drawing and something you know artistic is like. I'm going to draw know, the, you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's how us beautiful. artists do it, guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> how we lure them in. <laughs> Um, oh, my favorite part of this whole thing has happened your friend's list walks out he's like what just happened <laughs> right, right. Like, like, like like a violent murder and assault just happened next door to friend's list and he's like what's happened yeah well, so at and- this point Claden gets a you know face full of acid and a really cool scene so now we're outside in the streets of paris and he's now hiding from the police the police have been alerted so now we have bobby's kind of all over the place with the you know little lanterns looking for him there's a really cool scene yeah. of uh Claden hiding under a carriage and he finds a sewer you know, yeah. almost like he goes like full Ninja Turtle mode and, you know, goes underneath <laughs> and, um, you know, hiding from the police. It's a really cool scene. And underneath the streets is a, you know, kind of a sewer, but like with running filthy water, jumps in and, you know, kind of washes his face, but ultimately is kind of his now pathway back into the opera that takes him, you know, and we'll get there, takes him kind of to his underground lair in this opera. Yeah. Is So is this 
my one question I want to ask is, I'm not sure about the, the these these Paris sets that they're running around. It doesn't look like Universal's um, European Town set um, that, that we know so well from the Wolfman and and uh-huh. and, and all the other ones. Where, you know, they do the little square like they do it in House of uh, Dracula. Uh, we, yeah. we just watched. You're right it, which, that it does not look like that at all. That's true. The because uh, yeah. so, because I I. My point, I wish they were because then this is in color. And the one thing we really don't have is photographs of a lot of those sets that they use for Wolfman, Dracula, whatever, in color. And it would have been so neat if this one movie that they happened to spring for the Technicolor in, if we could have seen that set in color. But I don't think it's that. I think they maybe built this for the film. Um, uh, and it might have been a one-off or, and maybe used it for some other stuff. You have to keep it afterwards. No, I, I don't Almost. know. But the funny thing is, if you think of like all these different, you know, Victorian era stories from, you know, a lot of the Jack the Ripper stuff and everything have yeah. street sets that look exactly like this. Oh, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like this. And stuff. I'm talking about in this, into the city. 60s you know and, yeah and, and it's rain so. slicked and, and and it it's really just gorgeous scott i love that you just connected the family opera and teenage mutant ninja turtles too by the way that's just <laughs> yes. sort of the it's the go-to for when like you just don't fit into society you're just gonna crawl down into the sewers well, i gotta say the technic i just i was watching the scene a little while ago that technicolor down in the sewer makes that water look absolutely gross oh. it's like these and, greens and, and the browns. first yeah, yeah, yeah. thing he does is he washes his face with this right. water and you're just there's tons of stuff floating in it and you just can't even you're you don't want your brain to go there it is, is this understood just, to be sewage like literally raw i don't sewage? think it is I, it but, could it, it that just doesn't make sense because nobody would do that even in even in this era you wouldn't it must that. be a yeah. water a rain drain yeah like it ha- would it, well even if it, even if such a thing doesn't exist i think in the universe of this it has to be storm storm drain. Hey, let, let, let's just let's just assume it's storm drains right let's let's yeah. do that just for the sake of whatever. I'm just gonna have to go with that yeah yeah so oh, this is egg. like just the I don't know how long we are into the film now, but but that that's sort of this film is supposed to kind of having three acts. It kind of has two parts, and that's sort of that first part of the film. And from now on, we it's in an interesting kind of storytelling methodology here. We we start a second chapter of the film, and we have yes. new characters introduced. We have we have um, which is that's we now right. go into the more traditional the Gaston LaRue story where we have the owners of the opera who are yeah. fretting about money. We get into the love triangle more with, with Christine and, and the baritone and the, and the, the gendarme. It's really interesting. Like we, we kind of start a new film. It really is. Well, I mean, the first, the first half is really, it's the death of, of Claudine from this yeah. point on. It's all phantom. It's all phantom. The, it, you said it exactly right. There's, there's really three acts. And the third one's quite short. Yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but but because the, the third one is uh, chandelier on and it goes fast. But uh, but yeah, the, the, the first one is the origin story. And now now we cut into also the Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff. This is exactly this is very much Andrew Lloyd Webber with yeah, the with point. the opera ghost, right? Right. The opera ghost. Yeah, very well. Yeah. And the 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 comic relief uh, of sorts with the, 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 the love triangle and stage yeah. manager yeah the love triangle with all of its like leitmotif music mm-hmm. being played all the time and um and this is where everybody checks out by the way like this is the point where <laughs> where, where critics or i don't even know it's so absurd that we're arguing about a movie that came out 80 years ago but you know critics become unhappy with the movie at about this point when it becomes but you, but you know, know what comedy. i totally like with so the the next scene in here is 
kind of the office of you know the the, the executives say of the opera company, and I totally buy. The couple of them are just like you know the the, the, the snobbery of them. Oh yes, and then it's yeah. it's the stage manager who's like a little bit fey and he's over the top. Yeah, Steven Jure is that guy's name, and yeah, he yeah. is so, very fey. He's very fastidious and mincing, and and I don't know. I haven't checked the celluloid closet to see if <laughs> if we're supposed to read him as as a gay uh, uh, opera mm. executive or what. But, you know, he's, he's the one who's afraid of the Phantom and he does a lot of like, like is just sort of prancing. And there's a lot of uh, handwork happening. A lot of the Oh, he's great. Yeah. He yeah. does so much great stuff. Yeah. No, he, he's fun. And I also love, I love J. Edward uh, Bromberg. Uh, he's playing mm. one of the co-owners and he's the Alcalde in Mark of Zorro with Tyrone Power. Wow. He's always, he's always great. He's, and he's good at being, he's great at being afraid of things. <laughs> It's wow. like it's like that was like his his bit he did like he's good at being afraid of Zorro he's good at being afraid of the opera ghost. Wow, so this is a really cool scene. I mean, it's a quick scene, but it's basically yeah the you know the executives of this opera company, the stage manager, and basically find they're discovering that you know things have gone missing. You know, the stage manager comes prancing in. I'll use your word, Jason comes kind of prancing in. He's out all aflame that basically you know food has gone missing and you know blah blah blah. And you know, long story short. The I guess the kind of the chief here discovers that his master key ring that can unlock twenty five hundred doors yes. has gone missing, and you know, now they believe that there's a ghost. You know, they keep they refer to the phantom as now the that, ghost yeah. of they're, the opera. They're more upset about that than they are the fact that they're missing all the pickled pig's feet. But which <laughs> right. which are, the, the pickled pig's feet come come in? They're they're mentioned a few times, and I love the idea that the phantom of the opera, this spooky opera ghost, cloak wearing hat murderous guy sometimes he's just sitting down in the basement eating pickled pigs feet. he's just kicking back <laughs> listening to some list listen to music yeah exactly. and uh, <laughs> listen to tunes and then in eating pickled pigs feet one hopes with a fork because there's no it's no fun at all having to reach your hand into it i mean we assume he has taste buds left vinegar. after the acid attack we don't know you know this they could have burned his tongue it, it might not matter to him oh, yeah. i just love it, i just i just love the idea or the thought of this intruder in this giant you know this huge opera house with access to you know quote unquote 2500 doors yes. <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I think the subtext here also is, as far as I'm understanding it, the the new owners of the opera are what you'd call nouveau rich. Yeah, like they're they're not patrons of the craft as much as as maybe former owners of the opera have always been in in its mm. long and storied history. These guys are business guys who have bought the opera with the intent of of making some money off of this art. So they're not really respected in that way because they're not they don't really believe in it. They're not part of the thing. One of the things I love having done theater and the family opera is all about that in theater. Theater is sort of a subculture that exists mm. within normal culture. And once you're in the theater culture, there are different rules and morals and 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 customs and things that apply only to theater culture. And once you go out in the regular world, you're back in like the real world. But this is about a... a the, the Paris opera is kind of a small city that exists within Paris. And, that, and so much of this second half story, especially takes place <coughs> within this small city that has its own laws and rules and stuff. And the Phantom is the thing kicking up a fuss within that that subculture. So move down really quick. So there's a super quick scene, as we mentioned before. So we have Christine Garon, the baritone, and Raul, of course, the inspector, <laughs> in her apartment. Raul has come in now that we'll just call him the Phantom now. The Phantom is on the loose. 
And they know that Christine and Claude N had had, you know, a, a working relationship. And, you know, yeah. Christine kind of fills them in that, you know, the last time she saw Claude N, he was like, acting very strangely and, and blah, blah, blah. So basically everyone in associated with this opera company knows who the perp is. I mean, are they connecting him with the opera ghost or they just know that this guy who used to play the violin did a horrible thing? I guess that's true, Jim. I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah, know, that's, the ghost that's really true. Yeah, forgive me. Job. Are they in investigating? Uh, are they investigating the would be the, the death. murder? Yes, yeah, exactly. the murder, and then okay. the missing person that is. Yeah, because the in. Phantom hasn't started actually doing anything really criminal yet. So other than no, no, I think they know keys. about him, but you know the. Lo- but I don't think he's. Yeah, exactly. The the police aren't like after the Phantom. Yeah. Well, it's the two yeah. murders in the in the 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 music production company where he was trying to sell his his composition. Right, right, right. So right. they're looking into that, and so they come to her and say, "Hey." You know, Claudine, your your pal killed a couple of people at the record company. Uh, at the, you know, at the music at the music company. Well, um, and they find and- a bunch of stuff of they find a uh, oh they find a bust of Christine. They find like a sculpture of her in Claudine's apartment, which which mm-hmm. even Christine, as nice as she is, is like that's kind of creepy. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah. can you imagine, can you imagine going to somebody's house and they have a sculpture of you in their house? They didn't tell you about. Well, yeah, I, you know, but what's funny about this character is that she's so capable of just putting whatever it is out of her mind. Oh, for immediately sure. Afterwards, like whatever. She's like, well, that's disturbing. La-di-da. And now, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, just no yeah. longer just not a part, you know, she it's turns a, her head. She's a, and it she's goes a away. little uh, bland or myopic or something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, we always root for, female characters from this era who actually take charge and actually move the plot forward and are actually, you know, real actual protagonists in the story. Yeah. Un- un- unfortunately, uh, uh, Susanna yeah, Foster, Susanna play, Foster, plays Foster plays oh. Suzanne Foster. Yeah. It's kind of relegated to, to being the, the, the pretty face and the very pretty voice, by the way, she, man, could that actress sing? Um, oh, yes. we do, we do see that and hear that a few times in this, in this, uh, story and Holy, Holy geez. Yeah. You can hit some notes. Well, when she, uh, when they did the Lux radio adaptation of this, Nelson Eddy and Susanna Foster still appeared in their roles and did the singing. You had uh, Claude Rains wasn't available right. to do the Lux theater thing. So Basil Rathbone took the Claude Rains part. But, um, Interesting. Uh, and it's cool, by the way, if you haven't gone down, I want to listen to that. The weird, the weird like rat hole of, of Lux radio theater, it was this thing where, you don't have home video, right? And so, so if there's a big movie of this six-month era, you'll have, you know, Lux would gather as many of the actors as they could, and they would put on a one-hour radio version of it. And it's so neat. I mean, it's just, you know, so. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, we're good. I never heard that, Jason. I'm so glad you brought that to the table, especially. I mean, I, I love, you know, Rathbone, and he's such a great voice. So I, I definitely want to look that up in my spare time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was playing Sherlock Holmes at the time, I think, uh, on on the radio because he Rathbone. Yeah, sure, sure. Anyway, so really quick, yeah. I mean, so this, I guess, the only thing the scene really does is not only puts kind of caught in on uh, the minds of everybody, but it reinforces this this love triangle. This is kind of where some of the humor and the charm of the movie happens is between you know the the Nelsonetti, you know, the Garon character. And and Raul the policeman. So it's it's really it's it's really fun. And you yeah. know, you mentioned before Christine just her naivete. I mean, she's aware something's going on. I don't think she's that um that that naive to not know that these two guys are kind of courting her. Oh, but, absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. She gets that. Yeah. 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 I think she's enjoying it actually. 
Of course. I think right. she enjoys making them both really uncomfortable. She's having she's having some fun with it. <laughs> I don't have any objection to that, by the way. I mean, no, to good me, for her. you know, the idea that that she's, you know, that she's being coquettish and she's a, she's a star on the stage and there's these two there's two gentlemen, you know, uh, sort of vying for her affection. I think all of that's probably kind of a lark. What I find just weird about her is that anything negative she forgets about instant um you know so it's out of her mind but the the script calls it out that's why you have the curious ending that you have you know which we'll which we'll get to but anyway she's um, probably taking laudanum or something like that for (laughs) some sort of ailment or something (laughs) like that like so many women had to back then and stuff because there was no actually good prescribed medication so maybe we can write it off to that no i i think she's just a a fairly i think she's a fairly typical star i mean she's a narcissist i I think she's well suited for the opera right (laughs) to be a a prima donna (laughs) sure absolutely she's a she's going to be a megastar and also i mean look even you know even archie has two girlfriends and and is is very (laughs) you know it is france so (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> this poor girl 17 what were you guys doing at 17 years old yeah, exactly. Right, exactly she's, she's I've, ready, to, I've she's ready to inherit the whole opera play that's right now I, I love these two guys and the, the whole bit i mean one would argue like, like from a if someone pitched me this idea as you know and i'm directing a film and they're like she, they're, they're, she's gonna have two lovers and we're gonna cast these two guys and have them have identical mustaches and almost identical hair and almost identical you know Funny. I think my yeah. first my first instinct would be like, well, that's going to hang on. We're, we're going to get confused. It's going to be whatever. But I think in this case, it works great because he's the two guys after her are in so many ways, like really almost the same looking dude. Yes. Just what one, yes. one is of one culture and one is of another culture. And it, and it cracks me up because they're it turns into like a Rosencrantz and Gilderstern thing where they're almost interchangeable. Right. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, they're. they're and and the humor just comes from their their relation to one another and, and they're constantly like out politing one another. All of that's yes, great. Yeah. I, I, I love all the Chip and, and Dale but, thing, like after you, no, after you, after you, after you. Yeah. But just imagine, if you will, if Jaws had, for instance, had like 30% less shark oh, yeah. and had just upped the stuff between Quint and and uh well, Hooper. Well, but you you've, know, and, you've you've read okay, is is if both of you guys read the book Jaws? I'm aware of the book Jaws, okay, and it's I'm, funny. I'm, I thought I'm, about I'm, that. I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to do a spoiler <laughs> in five, four, three, two, one. Hooper has like an affair with Brody's wife in the book, right? And it's oh mind-boggling because it's that. like yes. it's <laughs> like if C-3PO and Princess Leia had an affair. You're like, what? this doesn't belong here. So okay, we'll cut that all out. It's anyway. a, no, you can keep it. It's a super. <laughs> 70s story but i mean let's pretend for a moment that that doesn't happen instead you're just going towards milk toast mm-hmm. it, just imagine like like jaws just having just like three times as much just hanging out ribbing one another yes exactly I mean, exactly and and that's what we have in this second half of this uh right this film it is it is a little phantom light for me yeah <laughs> but but it's okay um okay so, so we go into so, so now along, we've got yeah. Back, back to the, the the opera house and they're getting ready. I will say this opera turns over operas at a rate that that is dazzling. I, it's like they're doing a different <laughs> opera every six days. I've, yeah. I mean, normally an opera company does like two things a season, maybe, maybe. 
Maybe yeah. they do one thing for a couple of years. This opera, the Paris Opera, does like six different operas on an in, on a revolving basis at all times, and it's it's the what's involved in it must be astonishing. And you know, Baron spends so much time trying to court Christina. How does he have the time to f- memorize his lines and get fitted right. in his costume? Amazing. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So what? I, I think I think that's part of a baritone's job. Actually, is he's he's always courting the young girls in the thing, and I I think that's what the the if I can jump back, I think that's what the conductor sort of is warning christine about is is yeah. it that he's probably seen this where a young singer falls for the baritone or the leader Absolutely. of the dominee and once he's sort of had fun with her he puts her aside and she meanwhile has put her interest on hold for that and right. she's left kind of hanging and i think that's partly in a kind way i think that's what the conductor in the beginning of the film is is warning christine yeah. about a little in bit the like, you can do this or you can do this but not both Oh, and the conductor loses a great talent too. If, the, if that happens, there's sure that he too. He's, he's probably seen re- good talent wasted that way. Yeah. Selfish reasons, and yeah. yeah. So yeah, this that- is a totally old trope, by the way. You could use this this afternoon. Uh, the the one student warns the other student that this professor chooses a freshman every year, and yeah. oh, it looks like this season it's you, but just you wait. Next year you'll be tossed aside, and right, and, right, uh, right, and you, you just don't want to that. be that that cast off uh, on the pile and stuff. And, you could write and, that this afternoon, and people would respond to it. Yeah, because it's it's because it's, it's it's a trope, and sometimes things are tropes because they're true. Yeah, and 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you, man. I mean, theater is all about everyone hooking up. It is. It's you're you're spending That's a really lot funny. of time with a small group of people. And not much time with anybody else, and it gets very incestuous very quickly. Wow, that's fascinating. In the best well, of ways. That brings yeah. us on to um, <laughs> how do I segue from here? Right. Go crazy, crazy, man. We're, we're back. Yeah, we're back at the Paris Opera. So for the first time, we meet Bianca Caroli. So she is kind of the nemesis of Christina. She is the lead singer side, the uh, the baritone. So kind of very full of herself. She's total Lucille Ball. If you look at her, I mean, she looks the, like her. Yeah, yeah, for the sure. First scene, I mean, she's got the yard, I mean, all the orange puffy hair, just the face, the makeup. She's Lucille Ball incarnate. It's it's amazing. But yeah, yeah anyway, no, she, she, she's lovely. So you have this big number. The Phantom has started talking to Christine. She's she she's heard his voice in the in her dressing room, and he's saying like, "You have great promise. I'm going to help you." I'm going mm-hmm. to, you know, I will protect you. I'm gonna, you know. She's not sure, you know, what to make of it. Again, it's like you say, Jason, she sort of brushes it off, but you can see from here on she's she's a little haunted by yes. this 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 voice. That's right. right. And she's not sure that she heard it, but I, I maybe it's just a lot I, of I know that it's a couple scenes away, but I want to I want to compare that to the scene where he walks into the dressing room of Madame, uh, what is her name? Caroli? Uh, Bian Caroli and with her assistant. Bian Caroli. Yeah. He just walks in. He walks oh, yeah. in like Batman and and, oh, right. and like speaks to them. That, I have to say, was the most surprising thing in this whole movie because the Phantom just traditionally just doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't just like walk in and address a couple of people, you know, yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. it was up, up front and stuff like that. Right. You know, he, he does. And we're seeing here where he's doing things like he's he's uh, dosing her drink so that when she drinks it, she uh, it, it, it yes. screws up her voice and stuff, which I, I will call I will we'll call BS on that, because when you're on stage, if you if you're drinking something, you're never actually drinking liquid because you're never going to <laughs> consume a hot or a cold beverage while you're trying to to vocalize and stuff but it's okay it works really well for this thing in this whatever this this big pageant they're doing with this this elaborate set it's kind of like colonial period and stuff like that and this is where the the technicolor gets a little pastel here for me uh mm-hmm. in this one number i'm kind of like uh, i'm missing the dark reds and greens and stuff but sure it's, uh, it's so beautiful though i i just i just love the grabbiness of the yeah. colors 
It's neat. Yeah. Um, so we'll just take a real, just a really quick step back for the listeners that haven't seen this before. So yeah. So basically, the Phantom has already kind of um, told Christine from the shadows that he's going to help her. And like, literally, the next scene, we see him tampering with a goblet that's about to be served to uh, Bian Caroli on stage, yeah. which is you know the, the gentleman had, had mentioned. She drinks it and instantly becomes ill. So basically, now with her out of commission, Christine is now elevated up to the lead role, which yeah. Uh, makes the phantom happy it makes garon very happy um, yeah and so she come basically act two of this play starts and you know christine comes walking down the stairs and, and lights the place on fire like never before yeah yes yeah right and they're cutting like, like the orchestra forth. stops almost and looks up like what yes. just happened like the orchestra who's so inured to this and has seen so many performances they stop and they're like holy geez um and it's true i mean, her she's it's not augmented it's the actress's real voice and she's just uh, this is whole somewhere in the thing it, it talks about how she could hit like a note of like an octave above high c or something like that it's some mm. note that i think most I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. I'm mostly tone deaf, but it's <laughs> that, that that very few human beings can hit. And she was very capable of it. And that's, I'm sure it's one of the reasons she got this role. That's beautiful. I, I don't know a lot about Susanna Foster, but she is, she is beautiful. Although I have to say, this is a, this is a, when I think of different versions, right? Um, the film version with Gerard Butler uh, had Emmy Rossum in the role of Christine. Yes. Yeah. And, from Shameless, right? Yeah. And it had a similar effect where, where she walks out and they just, they really, the, the movie really sold the effect of Christine just knocking everybody's socks off. Yes. You know, and that's a trick. It's a good trick if you're a director, because these are, these are all beautiful actresses. Everybody here is beautiful, right? Yes. So yes. it's a tough trick to have to somehow through lighting and timing and, and everything and the way you stay, put your camera yeah. to go, oh, but this person. But this, this person, person to, to, to elevate that. No, you're right. That's a good version. That's the uh, that's the Schumacher version of uh, yes. Oh, of, Schumacher. Of, of thank the, you for saying that. I forgot that that was who directed that. Yes, Joel Schumacher, the late great, awesome Joel Schumacher, nicest nicest director I've ever met in person. I will tell you this. He's just he was just wow. the sweetest guy. He was incredible. Anyway, I believe it. You know, I I think that um, about last uh, not about last night, but. Um, Cinema's Fire is one of the most yeah. beautiful movies. No, I, incredibly I, talented guy. So yeah, so Christine knocks the house down uh, with with her voice, as opposed to what the sh- the Phantom does later, um, <laughs> and uh, and gets all the bows and gets all the acclaim and and you know the the standing ovations and everything, and it's a big deal, and everyone's very happy about it, except Madame Biancaroli. Yeah, up and happy. Pants here. And her understudy that yeah, her understudy yeah. is you know surpassed her at least for this one night. And, you know, they have kind of a, a sit down between the managers of the Paris Opera Company. Uh, Raul is there that is the kind of the is the law and basically accusing um, Goran and Christine of attempted. murder. Yeah. And, yeah. How about um, that? Yeah. You know, yeah. He, she, she's willing to press like legal charges against Christine and 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 Baron for for doing this thing or without proof, without any kind of thing. With, but with no evidence just, at all. The scandal yeah, right. itself will will destroy the the, the opera. Yeah. Um, which which worries the owners, of course. So she, you know, so she has like an ultimatum that not only is is she obviously going to be put back into the role now that she's recovered, but that they're going to squash any mention of Christine's performance. That they're not going to like let the somehow one one doesn't know exactly how they planned to accomplish this, but they're not even going to let the press talk about this or anything. They're going to let her die. Like it was like a sensation. They'll let it die. Um, yeah, because she doesn't only. <laughs> She's reached this point where she's not only just jealous of Christine, she actually wants to destroy Christine. Like it's kind of her jealousy yeah. is that toxic. It's it's pretty grotesque. 
Well, her, one of her ultimatums is Christine is no longer even, she doesn't even want her as her understudy. She's going yes. back to the chorus. Back to the chorus, yeah. Right. So she basically, like you said, Jim, just totally, you know, setting her career on fire. And we have to, you know, the presumption is we, you know, the Phantom, you know, is is listening in on all this. And I think we'll get, we can fast forward a little bit, Jason, but basically it brings you to your Batman scene of uh, the Phantom appearing in this closet, if you want to go from there. Yeah, well, he he shows up in, in Bianca Rowley's room with her maid and, you know, says some dramatic stuff. And then the next thing you know, he's strangled them. So the scene, oddly enough, saying the dramatic stuff was not even necessary if he was going to strangle them in the first place. It was well, weird. I, the the trick that the film has to pull off here is that your, your title character of this film, the Phantom of, and while he's a villain, he still has to maintain a certain amount of, of, uh, of, of sympathy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, or he's, it's just not interesting. He's going to go and murder a woman. Yeah. In cold blood. Two he's women, just right? Gonna, he's going to throttle a, a, yeah. a lady. And the trick of that is you have to make this woman so hideously unlikable you have to make her so grotesquely it's a really good mean point. yeah that, that that the audience will somehow forgive him for doing that and and they do that but they really have to go overboard with with this miss bianca they have to make her such such a, an evil evil fiend um that you're like yeah i'm glad she got straight i got oh, zero I problem so- with this yeah yeah so one i mean the phantom basically demands that she leaves paris Mm-hmm. And I don't believe. Right. Thank you for remembering that. Yeah, that's he what does he give says. her an out. Right. Paris. right. Yeah. But I don't. I guess my point was going to be. I don't think she ever said, "Screw you, I'm staying at the pair." I don't think she ever, you know, really put up in a, a resistance against it. The only thing she really did was she went after his mask. Yeah. And then yeah. they kind of had a whole little kung fu. Exactly. Know, they have a hand, some hand hand combat, and then basically there's a cut scene to the hallway, and we see yeah. the phantom running out. Right. Where yeah. you know, then we later learn that. Being Crowley and her assistant have been killed off camera. Yes, yes. This is the first time we see uh, Reigns in the full Phantom gear with the the hat, the cloak, and the mask. I don't know the powder, much about the powder blue know. mask. That uh, <laughs> that I should say it's more like a robin's egg blue, but whatever. You know, it's, I'd like uh, to know more about the mask. I'd like to know more what the the origin of that, the thinking was of that. The because I, I will say the while while Cheney Senior's makeup in the first fan in the opera is 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 one of the most amazing things committed to film in the 20th century. The mask he wears, the little half mask with the little like lacy flap on the bottom mouth thing has always not worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um dramatically be and, and I think it worked okay because it was a silent film. You didn't really have to see his mouth moving and, and hear the word synced and stuff. I, yeah. I do really like Claude Rains's I love that blue green mask of his mm-hmm. and I love that it frees his mouth to to speak and to um deliver this this amazing in a way that only Claude Rains could speak. I mean, you know, uh, Jason, we've talked about you know Rains Rains was actually from more of a Cockney kind of part of England and he had a mm. much stronger accent. He sounded more like Uno <laughs> O'Connor than he than the that Baroque I didn't know that. that we associate with him. He created that, he did that received pronunciation thing. Uh, he mm-hmm. trained himself to speak like that. That wasn't where he was from in England at all. He grew up. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. That rolling well, R's and everything. So, I mean, again, it is a perfect casting choice for this film. I mean, him and that voice just get out of town. I like this mask a lot. As you point out, this is, you know, in the, in the era of talking, you have to develop a mask that the actor can be heard yeah. uh, using. And, and, and you also kind of want to show your actor a little bit. So it, yeah. it's a good mask because it still looks like Claude Rains. It does, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, you, you yeah. feel like if you knew Claude Anne enough, you would look at this mask and be like, that kind of looks like Claude Anne. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, um, 
and it seems to be made of, I mean, I don't know what it's really made of, but it seems to be made of ceramics. You have this wonderful notion that yes. if you if you really whacked him hard, it would like shatter into many pieces. And, yeah, maybe. Um, that, that's cool. It's got a little, a little bit of a Comedia dell'arte thing. So you, you get the feeling like it looks like a mask he would have stolen from somewhere in the opera, right? I mean, he, it's well, like, he it's like while, while he's going around, he found it. And he's like, well, here I is. It's not well, like he sat there and made it like, he, well, you know. So one thing I've always appreciated with with Universal, and we've touched on Jim, is that even you know with the full mask appliances on the face, they always allow their actors to emote yes. through their eyes, in mm-hmm. their mouth, and yeah. you know allow them to you know to to act through their the mannerisms. And this right here, I mean, so there was a Phantom of the Opera from the '60s from Universal, and the guy basically had a bag over his head with like one little you know peephole. Oh, so that's the at, one with um yeah. Oh, uh, with Herbert Lom. Herbert Lom, yes. right. Yeah. yeah. With the yeah. rat catcher. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I guess just the point being is that, right. You mean, obviously with, with clans with the mask reigns with the mask on, but it's clearly reigns. I mean, close ups yes. of, of the eyes and he's, you know, especially, you know, the, some of the, the final scenes him with him and um, Christine down in the, in the dungeon area, For sure. you know, some of yeah. the glances he's, you know, shooting over at Christine. It's really powerful. I, and I think it's important. I think it's, it's important to not take that away from reigns. That's his, he's got very little visible surface area to, to work with here in this latter half of the movie and, and, and for precious little screen time as well. So I think that's, that's really, I think it's a great sign. There, there's something architectural about it. I, I just think it's a, let me ask you guys, what do you think? Do you, there's probably a stunt guy doing a lot of the the running and climbing and, and stuff for, for Reigns, right? There's a lot of moments where I see him covering his his face with the cloak and running and stuff. And he, and he runs very like, I'm thinking it's not Reigns. I think, oh, I think I, yeah, I feel certain double. that this is a, that half the time you're seeing a double, but to yeah. be honest, I never thought about it. You, you mentioned it just now and now you, you have will. to be right. That, but it, but I, I've never thought about it. Yeah, we're we're now approaching the scenes here where obviously he just killed Biancaroli, so now he's on the run. And yeah, like you said, Jim, this clearly a stunt double kind of runs out of the room. And he's very definitely probably taller than Rain. Oh, this is lanky. when Nelson Eddy chases him around the raft uh, up right. into the rigging. Yeah, 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 which that's is right. a great scene. Oh my god, that's so good. This is when, and again, I keep thinking of the um, the Gerard Butler one when he really is Batman like. But I mean, there's a lot. You know, he's. He's running around ju- here in in this 1943 version. You know, he's jumping from board to board, and and at one yeah, from, point from catwalk to catwalk, and, and oh. everything like that. And and again, this is why I talk about this world within a world, where you know, there's the world of the opera house, and then there's this world that exists up above the stage in the rigging. Yes, that that is a very foreign. You know, uh, it's almost like a pirate ship, right? You know, yes. Uh, and it, and it affords you so much fun of like, you know, and and of course, so Nelson Eddy almost falls. He manages to grab the the uh, the, the the curtains, I think. For, yeah, like Douglas Fairbanks. He just goes down the curtains and things. Up there, like, yeah. so he, he's, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a yeah. moment where you're like, oh, Nelson Eddy's going to go be the hero, and you're like, yeah, he's not really up for it. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, he's chasing the Phantom. Yeah, they're up in the the rafters or whatever, and the Phantom kind of comes up behind him and hits him with like a hook or. Yeah. Something oh, oh like, sent- like a block and tackle or something. Like yeah, yeah, that's tackle, right. yeah. It sends him off staging and then, yeah, grabs onto the <laughs> grabs onto the curtain, slides down, and yes. then, you know, basically swashbuckle mode, grabs a hold of that rope and basically swings like Tarzan down to the, to the stage. Such floor. nonsense. If, just imagine if you, I mean, you know, like John, you know, John Lithgow is not going to suddenly grab on the curtain and lower himself to the stage. And <laughs> yes. Swing on a rope. You know, like it's, it's so bizarre. I can't think, of, I can barely think of any actor who could do that, you know, and they would talk about it 
for the rest of their career yes. if they did. Yeah. Oh, it would be it'd be such it would be such a thing. Yeah, I do this stuff. The the only story. Okay, we're, we're, this one's going to be a three hour episode. Um, ah, okay. Raul Julia was doing Man from Man Man of La Mancha, I think, at one point yeah, okay. in the nineties, and no joke, his eyeball popped out of his of his socket. Oh my goodness! During the performance, he was singing or something so loudly, his eyeball came dislodged from his socket, and he pushed it back into his socket and kept on going. Wow. Oof. that's a professional i would say that's go. that's shocking Good that man. is truly shocking <laughs> don't even, wow we don't want to think about like had he washed his hand first or anything no i don't know so that's anyway. that's unbelievable yeah. wow that's that that's a, that's truly. one story i'd heard about him so the, the 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 chase in the rigging you know it's fun and it's dramatic but it also sets up an interesting thing where the the inspector guy um is is chasing the phantom as well and everyone's wearing first of all it's it's the 1800s and stuff everyone's wearing suits and cloaks it's just what everyone wears so yeah. he's he's chasing the the baritone guy or the baritone guy's chasing the phantom and and, and the inspector guy's chasing the baritone yeah. and when he gets down there he's like he's like no i was chasing the phantom you didn't see the phantom and the the inspector guy's like no i i was chasing you i was so you. now there's a little yeah. bit of suspicion on and i'm sorry i can't I've seen this movie so many times and I, I actually never memorized the names of the baritone and the inspector. They're, they're so interchangeable. This it's the Rosencrantz and Gildersturm thing. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Anyway. We know that the policeman is called Raul only because um, in other versions, this is always the character who comes from outside the opera to oh, be yeah. the lover, to be the lover for Christine. That's the only reason why I have it in my head that that's Raul. But and, I couldn't and, and remember the, Nelson Eddy's character's name. Yeah, and Nelson Eddy's character life. would be the. It's in the book. It's the the Vicomte Chagnet or something, right? It's there's a yeah. there's a there's well, a this one is there's it, a Anatoly, guy who's into Christine in the book. Is mm. Anatoly Garon is, is is the full his full name. Yeah. So we are. But the par- the opera is mean, uh, closed now, right? Yeah, unfortunately. So after it took a few murders to uh, close down the, the, <laughs> opera, yeah. the opera company, but I guess it wasn't even really the opera, you know, management call. So this call came down from Raul, the policeman saying you need to close the opera and we need to do an investigation. So long story short, after I'm not sure how long it was closed, but basically the managers came to work one day and there's a letter from the Phantom demanding that number one, Christine sing, and that of course the opera must be opened up. So yeah, the yes. managers call Raul in, and they kind of have a, a you know, quick powwow to see what they want to do here. And the you know the tack they want to take is basically give the Phantom what he wants. So we're going to open up the the opera again. He mentions, I think, Chris at least initially, I believe he says he's going to have Christine sing. We know that gets later revoked. But basically has this plan to set up the Phantom by playing his lullaby. I mean, I don't want to get too far into the into the what a ridiculous plan this is, by the way. <laughs> can I just say this is the dumbest plan I ever heard? Because he's like the 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 detective is like, yes, let's open up the opera and use somebody as live bait because we know it will enrage the phantom and therefore he will have to yes. reveal himself. He's gonna make a mistake, right. Well, right. what, so, so what's, what's happening actually, it, it, so there's two plans. There's, there's Raul's plan is to open up the opera and they're going to, dis, they're going to disguise a whole bunch of policemen in the chorus. Mm. And so when the Phantom shows up, that's going to happen. And then the baritone has this ulterior plan and their plans are sort of working against each other. So it's, it's good <coughs> storytelling. It's actually kind of fun because it gets kind oh, of, Oh no, the, the concept is great. Yeah. 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 No, but, but I, I agree. The idea of like luring him out with his own, with his own melodies is a little goofy. Um, well, I love that. I'm saying that you wouldn't, I look, why do I know? Okay. But it just seems like in reality, you wouldn't risk 
a terrorist attacking a, a big crowd. Yes. Uh, you know, j- as a means of trying to catch him, it just By doesn't seem like no, that's how you. Tr- that's that doesn't seem like how you catch terrorists. But what do I know? I don't care. Well, I mean, I guess this is how you catch terrorists if you don't care about the collateral damage. <laughs> I guess the funny thing is, I guess it goes exactly the way they they plan for it to go because they do manage to catch him. In this way, because by the way, this is it. This is Act Three. Because right, because uh, here comes your big moment that everybody waits for. But I mean, as yes. as as the as the viewers of this movie, we all know how special that piece was. The ballad of of, of the or the the um oh yeah the lullaby of the bells was to Claude N. Does this inspector have any idea of the the significance of this music to Claude N? Well, the inspector's not doing this. This is this is the baritone. Is the baritone's plot is hatching where he's like he's working with Franz List, who Franz List has now been pulled into this like caper. Is, what a strange choice that is, by the way. Again, hilarious. Yeah. I, I, it's not part of the twenty-five thing, right? This is all new, and it's like, hey, who's the the, the celebrity cameo that we can have in the year? And it's Franz List. So, so again, I guess my, list. my so my point is, I mean, so again, right? Not the inspector. So it's it's the baritones, you know, scheme. But so, but again, does he have any idea of the of you know how meaningful this piece was? I don't think so. Declined. I, I, I don't think particularly. You know, I, I think that he knows it's his right, and I. So I guess the answer is yes from a basic standpoint it's going to draw him out you know um because they plan that he's going to play it after the show as well which i I, i'm a little fuzzy on that but but um but uh, knowing that means they have to know that claudan is the phantom at this point right so they do know that gosh good question yeah it it seems like the movie glanced over that how could we not know that And we've seen this movie several times and and i i can't remember that that's because it doesn't matter because we the audience knows and so you're just hey, kind of, of hand wave really about who knows what. Yes. Wow. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's the key, right? The lullaby of the bells is very pretty. Um, they do play it a lot in this movie. Yes. We, we, yes. we, we recycle the lullaby of the bells quite a few times in this film, but that's fine. It, it's just, uh, it's, it's a, they, we reprise it quite a few, but you know, it's, it's the central melody. It's okay. And, and we, we hear it in the title music and everything. I mean, it is, it's the thing we identify with the Phantom and, and I do love that in a movie about opera, there's a musical theme that connects the, the villain and the heroine, you know? Yes. Um, Absolutely. of course that's, that's classically, that's a light motif and it's, it's really, it's really wonderful. Yeah. And again, which would absolutely tie the whole storyline of them being father and daughter, where this was a lullaby again, not written by Claude N, but something from their village. Oh, because and, they came from the same village. Right? Same village. It's probably yeah, a yeah, 300, yeah. three or 400 year old lullaby that they've both grown up listening to and singing as children. Yeah. Man and and if he is her father, right. it's very likely that he sang it to her or played it for Ugh. her, you know, back when his fingers worked. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, yeah. So we're coming up on on the, the, the chandelier scene. So so again, the uh, Raul, the inspector, has decided that they're gonna put another singer in, in place of Christine. He thinks it's a little too dangerous for Christine and he's looking out for her and and that's you know, but but he is also trying to, as you guys said, like he's trying to enrage the phantom and, and get him to make a mistake. There's a yeah. great bit where like all these uh undercover cops on there are out on stage. So all these cops yes. suddenly are just thrown on the stage of the Paris Opera and they're they're all masked. In, yeah. in the course, but a lot of them were in the same mask as the Phantom. It's like it's kind of like yeah. a default chorus mask that he's stolen. Isn't that They're awesome? Stolen. Yeah, that's a so, great. So bit. there's yeah. a bunch of guys dressed as him, and the Phantom is working his way through the crowd, and he's taking guys out one by one. 
I'm yeah. not sure how Claudan becomes kind of a ninja. Like I get he's scarred and, That's, and mutilated, yes. and I know he's he's now living in the sewers and stuff like his that. Hand, his his hand doesn't work right. Yeah, a a a uh, uh, dangerous physical opponent, and it's I'm great, not sure where Claudan gets that. Except maybe his body's running on pure adrenaline now or something. I don't know. Well, look, look if if we were doing this. If you were doing this as a like a seven hour miniseries or, or yes. maybe even like a full season show, you know, you might have different subplots involving, you know, any number of possibilities. One of which could be that he could be possessed of, by some by some entity that that transforms him into a ninja. Another could be that he is his, you know, uh, maybe he trained for years and then forgot all about it for many years. And now is hearkening back to his, his commando days. And exactly. Vermont. At the very least, you know, who knows? Say, at, the, at, the ver- at the very least, you could add in a training montage where he's like working out. Right. Right. And like just learning, imagine learning Krav Maga like, or something. Right. Like, like imagine if you had the phantom exactly. active for like years, you know, if, if he's just part of the scene, you know, until finally things come to a head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if years had gone by, which this film doesn't afford us that, that time. Yeah. You know? But anyway, I do love the scene where the, 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 the cops are, you know, trying to be incognito. And meanwhile, they've given the phantom the perfect chance. He's just walking around looking at everybody. Like, I can't believe I can just walk around on say on stage. Like yes. This, this is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> well, it's funny. So yeah, he's, he's very, it almost seems like a little arrogant. Like, well, I can't believe this is working. Right. But then he kind of, he peers over and he sees Raul and he's like, oh shit. He kind of turns his head really quick and, yeah. you know, it, stumbles it, it, away. Yes. That, was, that was kind of cool. Oh, so good. Yeah. And, and Raul's figured out he's starting to tear off masks and stuff like that. He realizes at some point, I think he realizes he might have screwed this up. Like, this might have been a bad plan. Um, like, I think, I think <laughs> yeah. the Phantom's around here. The Phantom yeah. loves being the Phantom, too. And that's the one thing I love about every iteration of this movie, whether it's the, the Lon Chaney Sr. one, this one, the Gerald Butler one. The dare I say, nineteen uh, nineties Robert England one. Haven't seen, seen it. This one? I know oh. whereof you speak, but I have not. It's seen a it's it. a yeah. it's a guilty pleasure. You guys should see it. The Phantom loves being the Phantom. He enjoys. I know he's scarred and he he has to live in squalor under the opera and stuff like that. But he also kind of enjoys his gig. He enjoys exacting revenge. He enjoys his plots and machinations and stuff like that. He's not the Phantom's not tortured. I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Like the Wolfman is right. He's very at home where he's at, and and he's. He's getting done what he wants to get done, but he's, you know, he's doing it with a little bit of flair. He doesn't yeah. have he doesn't have bills. He doesn't have an employer to, you know, fire him from his his virus. Right? Doesn't have to worry about his pension anymore. No pension, right? <laughs> Again, like, yeah. he, like towards the end of the movie, like he he's very much acquiesced to the fact that he's going to live down there and yes. obviously wants Christine to be with him forever. And, you know, she can sing to him all day. And he seems, like you said, him very content and very happy with the, you know, this lifestyle. And do you think that's part, do you guys think that's part of maybe the attraction of a story like this, or let's say Mad Max, where you have a character that exists outside of society's laws and doesn't have to worry about his credit rating anymore and doesn't have to worry Absolutely. about landlords and things. There's a, there's a fantasy fun part of this that you're like, oh, it'd be kind of neat to get the Phantom. I mean, in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you get, that's why I'm, I was envisioning for a moment years of being the Phantom because once he actually starts everything, you know, he starts essentially like decompensating and going a little extra nutso, everything is going to go downhill. But for, for the years where he can just like be 
you know, getting rent from these guys and, and right. like sneaking around and, and doing, you know, eating all the pigled, pigs feeding wants. I was going to say that would get old after a while. That's the only yes. part of it. But what a great, what, yeah, what a great life, man. And it's a good and, gig, right? Yeah. It's great. Is, and before he started killing people and the, the man, the management didn't really seem to care. He's like, right. oh yeah, we just, we have this intruder, but as long as he, you know, leaves us alone, we'll just leave him alone. It's inconvenient. Yeah. 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 I mean, I yeah. think every time I've been in a, a big theater, I've been like, wouldn't it be great to just live in this place? Like they're, they're wonderful places. They're I felt that way about amusement amazing, parks. Yeah. Magical places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wouldn't it be neat to live in Pirates of the Caribbean, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be so, riding that train and then just jump off into the, into the woods and, and like disappear and live in the park. Okay. So, so we, yeah. here, we're coming up on the chandelier scene, which in this version, I got to say, I'm a little, if I have one crushing moment, sad thing that I, I feel like this, this, this uh, post Hayes code edition of the, of the fill of the, of the story doesn't fulfill it's, it's we have a great buildup where the the lady's singing on stage with with the baritone. Yeah. Uh, we keep cutting back. There's Claude Rains up at the roof and he's sawing at the at the at the chain that holds the chandelier. We cut yeah. back. We cut back. The 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 the, 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 the gendarmes are going for him. They're singing on stage. He's sawing. They're singing. He's sawing. They're singing. Sawing. And then finally, there's a moment where the 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 soprano the the lady singing sees what's about to happen and she screams mm-hmm. and the thing falls and then we don't see it hit right that's they right we don't yeah and that's crushing i mean even the 24 25 version we saw this great moment where the thing slams down yeah and, and you know, it's an optical effect and there's people superimposed in front of it and stuff like that but like like it's a big moment you just want to see it and yeah. and they they cutting away from it i think cheapens the, the awfulness of what of what because this is the thing that this is unforgivable what he does, right? And this is the moment he's he's right. But what I, I what I really like about the scene, it feels like a he feels like he's sawing at that thing forever. Oh my god, I know that's the best it's part. A, I mean, what a yeah. it's like a slow burn. It's like lighting the wick of a piece of dynamite, and just yeah. you get that slow burn, and you know what's going to happen. And yeah. yeah, I mean that it it kind of misses out on that final payoff, but yeah, man, okay, I'm watching I love it right that. now, and you do see it, it it crashes straight down in a camera, and that is pretty dramatic and stuff. I just, I just, you know, then there's a shot where it's superimposed, and you see someone kind of carrying a woman who maybe has fainted or mm-hmm. something. Um, uh, this is, I mean, he's a mass murderer now. I mean, he's he's, yes, I know he's, right. he's, yes. he's killed a few people, but those were targeted people. He is now a terrorist. He's now actually murdered innocent civilians just yes. just to accomplish his own ends and 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 now now his character's unforgivable he, he or irredeemable i should say well just for revenge at this point yeah. and, just, and just because the, the lesson, moment yeah. he does that the character as though he knows it's the end of the movie says things like oh we can never go up again now and now he starts right. talking really weird in like this elevated you know tone. Yeah, right it's interesting mm-hmm. It it becomes super strange, it, you know. He's he's like, and now you'll only sing for me, won't you? Blah blah blah. It's all yes. It's yeah. all like his it, madness is notched up a few a right few degrees, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, any of the plot stuff involving is this the daughter? Is this the whatever? All of that's out the window. You know, it's he's pure, you know, Malvolio, pure. Well, his obsessiveness with now. with her has overtaken everything and it doesn't matter now if she's his i don't think even in the if you want to look at this even in the 
from the from the lens of, of that she's she's not his daughter i still don't think his attraction to her is is sexual i think his obsessiveness about her he wants to he wants to be the the only person for her yeah uh whether it's as a father or as a as a tutor or a guide or a yeah, chorus conductor or whatever um no matter what it is it's it's drastically unhealthy and and he's willing to kill his way through as many people as it takes to get to that Jesus. point. Yeah, and and again, this is, this is what makes this him, him a, a irredeemable character at this point. You know, he's holding her mouth shut and he's like, don't scream, don't scream. Don't scream. Yeah. Well, and then um, you get to this wonderful musical uh, bit that I, I often wonder if Hitchcock was thinking about any of this in the man who knew too much, which is hmm. 1956, right? So 13 years after this, you have almost the same ending. Where the the uh, the person oh, Doris Day has to sing the song, right? She right. sings the song and reveals her location, and and that's what's going on here. It's good. This is so good. Wow. You know, it, there are some good bits of of suspense in this movie, and this is a good one where they're yeah. fo- where they're following the voice as yeah. he is so mad and and egotistical that he has to play piano and she has to sing. Because Here, here's his concerto and he has to sing and she has to sing for him yeah. in, in almost all the versions the phantom needs christine to sing for him oh, not for anyone gross. else he wants her to sing for him that, and again that's that possessiveness that's the gro- grossness of, of it all like absolutely um, uh, yeah I, i'm a little so so it, you know in in the in the book for sure um in the book there's a labyrinth of tunnels underneath the paris opera house and the phantom has converted some of them into rooms where it gets really really hot and and some rooms where there's other traps and dangers um mm-hmm. in the 25 version they 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 touch on that a little bit um in later versions they do too in this version the underside of the paris opera tends to be it's kind of a couple tunnels and leads into a big thing it, it becomes less of a maze and that's yes. one thing i kind of miss i'm like i i liked it when it was amazing, but but the film has spent so much time and capital getting to this point that now we're at a point where we kind of have to start wrapping it up. So I absolutely, it. that's absolutely it. I mean, what, what do you? There's no room for them to spend a whole bunch of time like figuring out yeah. whatever. At this point, a big chase would get, get pretty tiresome. You're like, okay, you know. yeah. Well, not, they have a much bigger chase in 25 for sure. Yeah, I mean a yeah, huge yeah. chase in the 1920s. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, it's elaborate. Um. He's got a, and this will be my last, I, he's got a great speech here where he brings her down and, and, and I, I wrote it down and he's just like, he says, you'll love it here when you get used to the dark and you'll love the dark too. It's friendly and peaceful. It brings rest and relief from pain. It's right under the opera. The music comes down and the darkness distills it, cleanses it of the suffering it made and all its beauty. And life here is like a resurrection. He's so mad at this point, uh, and he's so his 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 craziness has turned in on itself. And and he there's a part of him where he knows he's kidnapping her against his will, mm-hmm. and he's convinced himself that that's for her benefit too. And, yeah. and and it's just a, but 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 the way he speaks, you're right, um, uh, Jason. When you said like, my thing is like, I think he's inside the music now. You know, mm. he's creating his own opera, his own tragedy, his own whatever to replace the one that was stolen from him. And I think it's just really, wow. It's beautifully done. That, that is a very beautiful observation. Uh, that's, yeah. that's better than anything I could have said. Yeah. Um, yeah I um, mean, he's, he's in the bad cave and he's beyond redemption and right. It's his know, domain. Yeah. The bad yeah. Cave. Domain, right? yes. So too many pickled pig's feet. I think, I think that's what it does to you. It starts driving <laughs> you crazy. Of course, have the that, mask. you know, the, like every like any phantom film, we have that famous unmasking scene. So, yeah, and, oh, yeah. Uh, as the phantom is playing alongside, um, you know, his concerto going up, she, of course, you know, Christine's kind of slinking around, slinking around, pulls off the mask and, you know, unveils Reigns's his, his face. So basically his whole right side, you know, by his right eye. 
is just scarred. And of course, the Technicolor, you know, it brings me like to, like to those Hammer films, like the first time you mm-hmm. see just that running yes. blood. Just a fantastic. I love the makeup here. It looks really grotesque. It, it is. It is really good. Um, although it's not, it's certainly not as bad as it could be. And you know, it, it's it's just so interesting that the actual facial disfigurement is just not nearly as important as whatever the hell is going on in this guy's mind. His mind, right? That's interesting. Yep. You know, yep. because lots of people have facial disfigurement. You know, they're like like lots of people wear bandages all over their face, and and some people after the God, this is after World War One. People would lose their lower jaw, and they don't become the Phantom of the Opera. And right. Um, What's yeah. funny, I, I so you know again reading up on this. So Jack Pierce, who we all know is you know master makeup artist, worked yeah. very closely with Reigns, and something that Reigns was very very sensitive of was the fact that yeah, this was wartime, and soldiers returning soldiers returning back from the war, maimed and disfigured and scarred, and he you know he didn't want to he he didn't want to disrespect the soldiers coming back from the war. So it sounded like you, yeah, and used used that for tawdry purposes. That that's really interesting that that. He had the presence of mind to 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 step outside the the drama and and talk about that. Mm. Yeah, but it didn't sound. I mean, it sounded like Reigns was fairly easy to work with. But that's one thing that he was steadfast on that he did not yeah. want to look disfigured, like you know, quote unquote, like a soldier returning back from right. the war. So it had to be different from that. That's it had very to be interesting. Different than that, yeah. And you know, yeah. it's just you know, I, I've I've got the the movie paused right in that moment where she's in the makeup. It's it's just bad enough that you're like, I don't think this guy could walk around the streets of Paris now, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's it, the entire, what is it? The right side of his face is, is, uh, is, right. is disfigured and scarred his eyes drooped and stuff. No, it doesn't, it doesn't match up to the, the, the level of grotesquerie that, that Cheney went for, which, which he did after world war one. And, and I know I've read that Cheney looked at, photos of people who'd been disfigured for a lot of his huh. makeups and stuff he was kind of obsessed with not channeling that but like the reality of this like what happens mm-hmm. to somebody's face when this happens and what when this happens what happens and stuff and that's yeah. how he created a lot of his effects a lot of his effects were echoes of world war one and 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 things that had happened before um i mean cheney uh, i mean he had that death mask i mean this certainly isn't that but yeah this certainly definitely isn't that but 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 you, what you said, Jason, is so right. It's like it's it's all about Claudan's perception of his disfigurement. It's not really mm-hmm. about the disfigurement itself. It's like how he views himself, and he views himself as, as somebody who's been mutilated. Then then he is. He's going to behave that way, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I was just thinking. I can't ever get away from the wonderful 1925 dialogue where there's nothing like that here. In in mm-hmm. 25, he goes, you know, feast your eyes, glut your soul on my accursed ugliness. And it's the fact of the matter is you could have done a reveal where there's nothing wrong with his face at all. And you could still have him carry on that way. They, Uh, they did, they, they did that in the, I want to say the eighties or nineties with Dr. Doom in Marvel comics, Really, where they finally pull off Dr. Doom's mask and you realize he's got one little scar and he's so vain that he has covered his face up all these years Because he he can't acknowledge that he's got that one small perfection imperfection. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. I don't think I even knew that. That's amazing. At, at least it was toyed with. It was an idea they were going for. But again, this is this goes back to the thing we're saying. Like it's all in the the perception. Yeah. N- not to belabor it. I know we're running a little bit long here, but I think one of the early scripts of this film was that Claudette was actually a returning World War One veteran. Yes. Who was mm. Psychologically damaged, and they kind of went through the whole the whole business of you know with the, the the mask on and everything and you know that climatic unmasking scene 
like you said, and there was nothing wrong with him. It was all within his mind. Right. It, it's all, it's all what, what they call shell shock. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, reading about that too. That's so interesting. They, so they would, that would have, that would have taken the film up into like a current, um, yeah. almost yeah. current, you know, you know, kind of timeline and stuff, which would have been interesting, but, uh, but I could yeah. live with that choice. That, that would be a, that would be a cool choice. Yeah. There's, um, hey, there's always time. Let me ask you guys, if we're wrapping up here. I, I do want to ask this. So obviously, you know, there's the 25 version, the classic version with, with Cheney and Universal toys around for a while trying to figure out a remake. And finally here in 43, they do it. Do you guys think, uh, so we talked about the big eight, right? Like Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, uh, Creature from Black Lagoon, Mummy, and uh, uh, Fam and the Opera, right? Mm. um invisible man do you guys think with with if universal had not done this version of the film uh, if they hadn't done any version after the 25 do you think the phantom would even have a stance in that big eight or do you think this uh, do we have this film to thank for the for the phantom stature in that in that canon right yeah this is glenn strange this is what yeah, gets it to stick go. around because um I, I, I'm sorry, but silent films were practically stamped out, you know? Yeah. I mean, n- nobody in 1952 would be watching a silent movie, you know, exactly. a, 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 unless they were like a film student, if that exists. Yeah, I, I, I believe well, so. I mean, as a, now as a movie theater too, man, I'm not sure when the 25 version went to the public domain, but of course, Universal isn't making a penny on the 25 version, they can make money on this film. So it behooves right, them. Right. It behooves them to release this with a, you know, that the big eight. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so because of this film, you have every, every later iteration uh, on, on the film in, in the film world. And then you also have uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's version. I, I think, I, I don't know if, I don't know if Webber goes back and does it just because it's, it's a famous Gaston LaRue book. He does it because this, character is still in the zeitgeist of, of things so, so yeah in in doing that like like let's talk about how this movie creates a billion dollar industry right between the all the opera yeah, and the that's, theatrical that's true and everything this one movie right but 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 that, this. that uh makeup from lon cheney for some reason that gets cemented in people's mind but what i can't figure I out is how does that happen and i think it has i think it happens because of the monster kid movement in the 60s mm-hmm. you know, with, or the 50s and 60s with like the famous monsters and all I think that so. stuff also the, the also the hardy boys and nancy drew episode uh the tv show where they're on the universal backlot and they're chased by the phantom that's right yeah 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 it's not to get episode, too dense oh my gosh we got really dense there but oh my god but uh, honestly i mean it's so ghastly i mean Yes. Quasimodo, you know, going back yes. to like those, those are just fantastic pieces mm-hmm. of makeup and appliances. Yes. I mean, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know, know how to, do, go ahead. I don't know if we'll ever do an episode on Scott on, on the 25. I think doing, doing episodes on the silent films is going to be challenging. I'd like to attempt that at least for Phantom and for uh, uh, Hunchback, but um, it's, it's tough to mine that for content it's interesting that'll be an interesting challenge to see if it we can is. do that i mean someday. we're completists i would love to try that but yeah we'll have to think of something you know we'll, we'll figure something out there yeah. here's a here's a, a an exercise for you that just strikes me is that first of all that switch from silent to sound is the big the big thing that yes. separates the two because nobody cares about the silent after that so it's remarkable to me that all these lancini designs survive and i, I would love somebody who is expert to explain to me how that happened. Is it all because of Forrest G. Ackerman? I don't know. But maybe, yeah. But 1925, 1943, it's not even 20 years. You got the separation of silent versus sound. But other than that, it's not even 20 years. In other words, we're celebrating, celebrating, we're observing um, the 
the 20 years since 9-11, right? Yes, exactly. So 9-11 feels like yesterday. So yeah. 20, you know, uh, uh, whatever that is, 20, 18 years is not a long time to be, uh, to be looking back on a, on a classic movie. And, that's, and, that's and, and, you, and you look at the technological improvements. First of all, let's talk about, so Scott, this is our first color film we've talked about. It's oh, really. I know everything else has been black and white and I'm not sure I approve of it. I, 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 I think the color in this movie is sensu- is sumptuous and, and beautiful, mm-hmm. but it, it does to some degree, it takes away from, it separates it from the rest of the universal films that, that we talk about and that I love and stuff like that. This mm-hmm. thing is, this movie is a thing apart. It's very interesting. I have a, I have a love hate relationship with the color in this film. I really do. Like, yeah, it's just, there's something so quaint and, I don't know. Like my my heart really is, you know, with the, the old time black and whites. And I mean, there are just some scenes in here that is so amazingly beautiful and lush because mm-hmm. of the color. But for me, yes. I if I could go one way or another, I would love to see this and just the black and white tones. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if someday, someday, I mean, I need to put this on and just take my TV's color all the way down you and try uh, that. I wonder yeah. how this works graphically like that with, with black and white. Cause I, I, that is sort of the, the medium that universal was so well known for is that chiaroscuro black and white. And, and in the color gradations and the values that you have, you lose a little bit of that intensity just a bit. I don't have high hopes. I have to, I have to say, I, yeah, I don't I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a gray mess, fr- frankly. The depth uh, when, when he's filmed, when he's uh, using the hacksaw on yeah. that chain, yeah. You know, that's blue on blue on blue on blue. And it's only visible because of the depth. Because the color separation. Yeah, that's a great point. So Obviously. it would just, it would all turn black, basically. Yeah. And, um, and wow, to okay. me, as a hammer aficionado, I love this thing. This, this to me looks like it, it, it's, you know, it's it, it feels more like a hammer film sometimes. Isn't that interesting? Which is funny because there is a hammer one, which I don't think I've seen since the 80s so i have no oh, memory yeah. of what it's like you know but um it's for lee right no it was herbert Lom. that's uh, but but it does have well, michael well, gow well, but but that's the universal hammer version that we we mentioned before that it was like a it was like a collaboration between the two i believe it may be i yeah, universal I put that out it. yeah because yeah. it, it's on their documentary on phantom of the opera and if, if they didn't have some money invested in that huh. i don't think they would have promoted it yeah uh, here it is, 1962. So again, less than 20 years. Less than 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's it seems like this is a story that needs to pop up every generation, and and maybe there's a reason for that. There's a reason we crave this story of obsession and music and deformity and beauty, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, for some reason. Well, so so just to wrap it up. So uh, of course, you know, uh, the Phantoms Unmasked uh, are are heroes such as they are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, come, come on in. Um, there's a random shot that's that's shot up at the at the ceiling, which somehow creates an entire cave in into the cistern that exists under the uh, well, the, uh, the. I want to ask house. you guys about uh, really quick, and again, I know we're running long. So, Claude, I'm sorry, Raul takes out a gun and you know basically wants to take uh, Claude in back, and Claude reaches back and you know picks up a you know basically a weapon. And mm-hmm. it's he's about to shoot him. Garon knocks or Garon knocks the gun upwards, yeah. right? So he's basically protecting or saving the life of yeah. What end? Did you, did yeah, you... I think he's sympathetic to him. Unfortunately, I mean that doesn't work because the ceiling collapses and kills Claude. <laughs> so right, right, right. His 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 goal backfires. But yeah, I, you know, and and you have this. It's somewhat prosaic kind of ending where where he says, you know, now now his 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 genius will live just in music. It'll, it'll like. It, 
we'll forget about the man who was all tortured and, and misaligned and, and yeah. a murderer and other things. Um, and they'll remember the genius that was Claudine. It's a nice way to wrap it up. I don't know if, you know, I'm I not sure. Live, if we're interested I like, love those sorts of, that's the concept that Tom Hanks says, Walt Disney said in the, in, you know, saving Mrs. Banks or whatever it was where, uh, oh yeah, you know, that, that, that movies are there to strip the complexity out of a story and create a legend. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I'm fine with that because to me, that's Hollywood. That's what, that's what yeah. this movie is here for. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you need, you need something positive at the end of this because this has been a long road of despair and, and, yeah. and destruction. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah. so I get that. And this is, you know, it's Scott is, you know, it's just like, and a black cat where David Manners and, and his, his, his bride are back on the train after, after narrowly escaping a satanic cult. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny now they're like, Oh, we escaped. And now there's funny stuff, you know? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then this brings we, us we to the that. very, that's, that's why the denouement exists. We need that. Yeah. Well, then this brings us to the final, final scene where we, again, we have the, you know, the three love interests and it's kind of a cute scene. So they basically giving Christine the ultimatum. You got to pick one, Dallin, to Raul or, or Baron. Yes. And she chooses her her fandom. I mean, leaves the room and she's got That's right. oodles and yes. oodles of people waiting for her with flowers and accolades. And the two gentlemen basically said, well, let's just go to dinner together That's and right. walk out. Like, <laughs> she she follows the conductor's advice. She yeah. actually like, yeah. you know, that 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 kind of circles back and she's like, yeah, well, you know, I, I have I have my my significant other. My significant other is my fans. I love that. Like they just say, do you think we can sneak out of here with anyone noticing? He's like, well, who's going to notice a baritone and a police? Yes, yes. Right? No one cares. I love um, all of that nonsense. I mean, you know, great. and I, I remember I was watching. And they got the, the exact same bouquet. It's funny, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, it's the, and now that, you know, it's, uh, we saw this again on 90210 when, when, uh, um, I think it's Kelly says, I choose me and, and leave Brandon <laughs> and Dylan to, you know, to nurse their wounds. It suits me. I remember my dad saw this in the eighties and he's walking by and he goes, what is this? And I said, it's the Phantom of the Opera. He goes, that's the Phantom of the Opera. You know, with this whole like little jokey, very 1940s looking scene right here. And I was like, just trust me. It's the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And, uh, which you know what other film this does this whole, a little bit you know. is the, is the Vincent Price house of wax oh yeah um, mm-hmm. um as opposed to if you want to compare it to the mystery of the wax museum with the michael curtis film which we're going to be covering at some point which mm. is pretty dark and gothic and stuff there's there's this funny more upbeat dare we say romantic comedy side to to house of wax that that sort of offsets the horror of it right and that and it's all well and good and stuff like that but it reminds me of this is is that there's an idea. This is the antidote for all the horror we've seen, and it, you know, it's it sets it off on a on a good ending. It's 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 good. I think it's just the way that these 1940s movies are. Yes. You know, if they're if they're a, like your primary feature, if you're going, to, if it's the main feature that you're going to see, it's gonna hit these beats. It's gonna have some yeah. comic relief, and it's gonna. And have, that had to that had yeah. to be such a way because that's obviously what a 1940s audience wanted. I mean, they they'd obviously figured yeah. out that that's what that's what the audience wanted to see. And that's what they're going to give them. Yeah. And this was a long picture. I mean, this was an hour and a half. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, Compared to the 70 there. minute, you know, usually yeah, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll yeah. throw I, guess, I guess you're right. That's totally true. Because I'm so accustomed to our movies today, which are like, you, you're never so lucky as to get a 90 minute feature. I mean, everything is. No, is no, no. Every, everything's so long and, and, and slightly over overdrawn. Yeah. It's funny because I remember seeing this on Sunday mornings when I was little. And I swear to you, I remember the final scene being that slow dolly in on the, the, the violin laying amidst the rubble mm-hmm. of, of, of the cistern that collapsed on top of Claudine, right? Yeah. Um, I, so, I could swear to you, I remember that being the end of the movie. I don't remember this little coda uh, yeah. a bit at the end. And I think that's probably just my young male's mind just just deleting this from his memory yeah. <laughs> and only remembering that bit. Like, that's what I wanted the for, ending to be, right? So, yeah. But it, it is what it is. Um, what a, what a, what an interesting piece. And again, yeah, our first color film. It's probably the only color film we'll talk about, Scott. It could <laughs> on be. This podcast. Jason, thank you for bringing us into the world of color. Really, yeah, really appreciate, appreciate it. That. And, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film. And so happy we could, you know, not only share the time and space with you, but just to cover such a great iconic film and just so many things to talk about and just so much, so much fun. So really had a blast and cannot, Absolutely. can't thank you enough for, you know, taking. I'm very thankful it. that you would extend the invitation and, and also that you would stay up this late. I mean, it, it's, uh, I know on the East coast, it has to be, it has to be, well, it's two hours later than it is where I am. So We're creeping towards midnight, but you know, it's the, things we, do for, the things we do for love and passion mm-hmm. and art. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Cool guys. Wow. Hey, hey, yeah, Jason, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure talking with you about this one and stuff like that. And I hope we can do another episode with you at some point soon. This will be really fun. I'm I'm down with it. I gotta I gotta turn in a book on on uh tiki uh you know tiki movies, basically movies with oh, palm wow. trees in them, essentially. So if you can think of a horror movie that's on an island with a lot of palm trees uh, that you haven't already done, uh hey, let's let me check know. out Scott, let's check out Weird Woman. I doesn't that doesn't that take place? Oh, it does. Island? Jungle Captive Woman, Weird Woman. Yeah, we get a few right, happen. Think of. All of all of those things sound excellent. All right, guys, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Jim and Scott, have a wonderful, wonderful evening. I'll see you. Thanks, soon. Jason. You too, Bye. Jason. And thank you, Jim or Ken, for joining us. Such a good time. And Listeners, thank you for watching and listening. I don't know about watching, but thank you for listening to the Pogo Pass <laughs> Horror Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Good night, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Ahrens. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.